Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Tales with TR. And I'm the host, Terry Ryan, joined by my trusty producer, Mike Hickey. Hey. Now shut the fuck up, Mike. This is my show. Um, <laughs> kidding. Mike's great. Mike's a good buddy. As we do this, we're planning a trip, actually, to Gravenhurst. And uh, the end of February is the third man in team, and we're going to need a few players because it's eight. Making up a team to the Spit and Chicklets three-on-three tournament, which I'll get into in a little bit. So I guess first thing I'll talk about, uh, we got a great guest coming on, by the way, uh, Brian Burrard. Uh, Brian went first overall the year I went eighth. And unlike me, he played in the NHL and didn't become a bust even with one eye. And uh, he's got a great story. He lost his eye in 99, 2000, I believe. And came back, and, and uh, resilience is like, you know, and, and his book's called Relentless. But this guy, honestly, I've said it before, you know, he was, he was paid out $6.5 for losing his eye, and he gave it back because he wanted to earn it, and he wanted to play hockey for a living. And uh, that is an absolute, just an unselfish and, and, and character move. Unselfish would be the wrong word, I guess. Who are you being unselfish for? It's a very, it, it shows that he loves. The game of hockey uh, is pretty humble, and money didn't mean everything to him, you know, so which, is, uh, which is amazing. And he wanted to be around the boys. He wanted to play. And he wanted to, uh, you know, he clearly had, even with the one eye, he came back and, um, with vision. He's got both eyes. He just lost his vision in one. But he came back, man, and uh, he had some great numbers in the NHL, like unbelievable Norris Trophy-type numbers, to be honest, uh, after that with the one eye, which must have been absolutely crazy. And then he played a couple years through a back injury, so... Uh, and he's, uh, we got a great mutual friend, my goalie and junior's name is Brian Boucher, and they're both from Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And we're all born in the same year, Brian's a good friend of mine, and uh, you can see our interview with Brian on th- uh, my, th- my other podcast called Third Man In, and I think we did Brian, what, two months ago, three months ago? Oh, it was longer than that, it was back was in it? probably, uh, <laughs> it was in like April or May. Did I mention I had concussions? <laughs> um <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so he's an unbelievable guest. Most of it I'm just going to say, because anything else I say, we're probably going to repeat. But he's got a lot uh, a lot to say and a great story. And at the end of it all, he actually got ripped off. He, his agent or his financial advisor is jailed for fraud. And uh, Brian and about uh, well, a couple of dozen other players, I think, uh, got fucked over by him. So um, where am I going to go first? There's obviously an elephant in the room in the hockey world, and uh, a lot of you know that I lost my job with Mill Street uh, because of an ad. You can go and look on the ad on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, I posted it. It's amazing. Um, I'm not going to sit here, and, and it, this is not going to be a podcast where I sit here and try to shit all over Mill Street, although I thought the ad was great. It did, uh, And when I say ad, I put it on my own account and um, not theirs. And I took full responsibility for it. It was, um, and I put a disclaimer up, whatever it might be. I thought it was a funny ad. Uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, go ahead, be my guest. Um, you got tens of thousands of views and not one negative reply. This was the week after I had Bob Cole and Ron McLean in their bar, which was a ghost town. So I don't want to sit here and rip on them. There's, I'll, I'll never have Mill Street again, and I, I'm not going to direct anybody towards there just for obvious reasons. So if you're going to go get shit-faced, do it somewhere else. Do it somewhere else, yeah. <laughs> do it somewhere else. I mean, I got my pride. Again, there's nothing... I can't. If I say nothing against them, I'm probably lying, right? Because uh, I don't understand that I don't. If you look at... Now, you, I, even again, I understand if even if you had a problem, well, call me in and talk to me. 
But whatever they, I, I, the thing is, I, I said an F-bomb, but that, that's not even what they were mad at. They were mostly mad at chugging a beer at the end of my little ad. I said, you know, I know drafts. I'm Terry Ryan, and I know drafts, but my favorite draft is Mill Street. Anyway, and there's more to it. Some would find funny. Some would find offensive. And uh, anyway, I, I chugged a beer at the end of it, and I spit my tooth in the beer, and I, and I guess they didn't like that and, and said that it, misrepresented them but again what are people drinking beer why are people drinking beer a lot of us chug that's just the way it goes and I, I only did it for the camera i don't normally chug beer i don't sit in my basement and go you know what fuck i really love to chug a beer right now it was clearly for comedic purposes there's a ghost town the place is going to shut down uh and i thought i could help bring people in the door um so anyway i know there's employers out there so if you go ahead, uh, I was just going to say, uh, and not to not to you know defend or whatever it might be. I know that in Canada specifically, there are some like really strict, ridiculous regulations about how um, alcohol consumption is supposed to be advertised and stuff. Um, and but I, at the same time, it's your personal. It's thing. my personal account, and that's, so it's just I. And that's why I did it, just, right? Yeah, it's one of those like yeah, I just and I drove home. First of all, it, I'm it was still it I'm like, still just kind of yeah. like no, you're like, right though. I just don't, you have to present that because a lot yeah. of people out there are going. I mean, to, yeah, like that. That's yeah. the thing is that I I I kind of assumed because me and you haven't really talked about it. We haven't had a chance to get together since you were yeah, out of town right. the weekend and all that kind of stuff. And we might talk about it on the next show because I'm not supposed to talk here. But no, no I don't. Um, this is great. No, but but it it it's just it is something that I found really interesting because to me that's the play. It's that. Yeah. I understand that because of regulations, there is um, there is a, a whole thing regarding like what and how you're allowed to present the consumption of alcohol and how drink responsibly ha has to be so prevalent and, and all that kind of thing. And um, if somebody, you know... Again, like because you you, you uh, your stories have become such a huge part of like Mill Street's promotion and stuff. Like, I can't like to me. I, I there's a part of me that understands the argument, but on the other hand, I still think it was really stupid because I said this last week on Three MI when you weren't here that at the end of the day, those guys picked and hired Terry Ryan for that job, and you're you. Your book's out. The podcast is out. The videos are out. Everybody knows who you are, and so. You, you, and it you, boosts. You, I'm going to do what I can to boot that. Gotta, Sales you, were, were, I'm not going to say yeah. skyrocketing, but they were steadily improving to say nothing else. And, you know, I was doing that for months. No, nothing, nothing. And, and there's some stuff I did that was close to that. And I was pushing the print, but I didn't, again, represent that. That's my thing. If I go on now and do an ad, an ad, quote unquote, with Miller Genuine Draft, are they going to phone me and reprimand me? You know, because it's my own personal account. Now, I get how I represent Mill Street and all that, but still, I thought, especially given the prestige that I gave them or, or two or three weeks before with all the posts that we did with Hometown Hockey was here and Tara Sloan and Ron McLean and Bob Kohler there, no one's complaining. Um, and I went about that. Basically, look... Your, your argument is is definitely that I mean it's not, it, and it's not my I'm no, just no. I'm just devil's advocating yeah, here. You're, and, just and to, you're yeah, of course, and you need to have that because a lot of people are going to disagree with me. My point would be, I guess, and I said I wasn't going to do one of these for a while. I got you know because I don't have a permanent job yet, and I said you know what I got to find one. Until then, I won't put out a podcast, and we're, we're you know we're going to do this, and we're also doing a third man in coming up. But um, you know, I, I, but I've had the odd job over the last couple of weeks, and uh, you know I've had a couple of acting gigs, public speaking. I'll talk about that in a minute in Lower Ontario and Bracebridge. And that was all great. And I, I don't like to be taken away from this for too long because it's just that, you know what I mean? Podcasts don't really pay the bills. So at least not right away. So 
I guess my point, if there's anybody out there listening, A, a I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, gonna try to be back to this now fairly regularly. Um, but if there's any employers, I, I just, I totally understand if you didn't like it, but have a look at it. And if you don't think that I was over the top or you think I was, but appreciate that sales were, were booming, not booming, considering what, compared to what they were, they were getting progressively better. I just put out a film, you know, if you look at Mill Street's page, YYT, Mill Street, YYT, Newfoundland, You'll see a, 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 a film that a short film that myself and Roger Monder just worked on about foraging, and you know I really got along with everybody down there. So I thought it was a bit of a slap in the face not to get, um, you know, talked to and warned. Uh, so, but again, I'm moving on. The people there, I wish the best because I'm sure this was one or two people's decision that aren't even in Newfoundland. Well, I'm sure of that. Uh, and, you know, I had a great time there. I really did. I wish them all luck, uh, especially Jacoba Mole. Uh, she's the head brewer down there. And, um, you know, we became friends and she's great at what she does. I was in awe. I didn't know much about beer other than drinking it before I took the job. But she's unbelievable at what she does. And if, um, you know what, I shouldn't say don't go to Mill Street. You know, that's petty. If you go there, I mean, fuck. She, you know, I don't want her to lose her job or anything. Go there, just uh, be aware that uh, they fucked me over, Okay. <laughs> Um, but that's it. And that's all I'll say about Mill Street. Now, next, I'm going to get to this first. Of, I got to, I guess there's, uh, there's, there's been a bit of a shakeup in the hockey world. So we know Babcock got fired. Okay. Everybody knows that now, if you're listening, if not just Google it, because I don't have time to tell you all these stories, but Mike Babcock, you know, uh, gave Mitch Marner an option as a rookie. You know, can you, can you write all the, um, write down all the, players how hard they work from hardest worker to the least hardest worker and uh, which which is an odd place to put a kid in and that's kind of reminds me of michelle terrier who used to be my coach who i fucking hated and i thought he was a bit of a dick and that is a dick move uh and marner anyway did it what's more of a dick move is that he told the players on it in a in a open meeting with the team and so it would have thrown the rookie under the bus now why i know babs likes to have control Maybe he wasn't set on the Marner pick. I, I have no idea, but it's a dick move. Now, same week, unfortunately, for the whole hockey world, uh, Bill Peters uh, got fired from Calgary. Well, eventually, but he said, they, oh, he's not fired yet? He Mike? resigned. Okay. They worked it out because they. Um, it's the first time this has ever happened where a coach would have been fired for us, for off ice uh, an off-ice incident that happened when he was with a different organization so after like dealing with it with lawyers and stuff for three or four days what they mutually agreed to is that peters would resign from the job as opposed to being fired as to, as opposed to setting precedent in terms of like wow. nhl contracts and shit i, yeah. I, I should have actually known that um but I, I honestly it's such poison that i just figured you know i knew he was gone i have been paying attention but that's a good point he resigned um but it's such poison and hockey twitter turned to poison Anyway, and what Peters did was come in and use the uh, N-word. I'm sure you all know what that is. And he used it multiple times, and he used it to a player, a black player. So it's not good. Right? It's not good, and it's embarrassing for all of us that were involved in hockey in that era. But I want to make one thing fucking clear. Bill Peters is not Mike Babcock, at least not what we've heard in the public. Those stories aren't the same. You know, as long as we're treading around delicate issues, I often say it about, you know, the Me Too movement in the States. 
or everywhere. Jeez, and it should be everywhere. I get, I understand the Me Too movement. I get it. But rape is not the same as touching someone's shoulder. Women might get offended, and, and men. Someone might be offended by that happening. And it might make them feel very, very uncomfortable. And it's not good. But let's not say that rape is the same as touching a shoulder, which is a parallel for the hockey world. Using the racism to those young players, to anybody, but using racism is one thing. It's not the same as making a stupid move, as making a cocky dick move. So Mike Babcock is not Bill Peters. Mike Tyrion, Michelle Tyrion, who I, I, I don't know many people that like him. He was my coach in, in Fredericton, and you all know the stories. I can tell you, the, the one he called me in for a meeting one time, you know, one of the big ones, and, you know, he had a smoke, and he didn't talk, and I didn't talk, and he told me to get the fuck out. Now, clearly, he was trying to light some kind of fire. Clearly, he was trying to be old school. He was trying to be Mike Keenan, whatever. Um, and I hated that shit. And I asked for a trade. But 20 years later, whatever. It happened. He was doing, like, Mike was more acting. Or Michelle, I keep saying Mike because that's what I called him. But Michelle Terrian was more acting in what he thought he should do. He was, he was being some kind of, you know, uh, he wanted to be a dictator. He wanted that, uh, you know, all authority all the time. So if that's how he thought he was going to get it, I, I, I mean, I don't, I think it's fucking the stupid, but I understand it. I think it's stupid the way he went about it. And there's a lot of other things with Michelle Therrien that I didn't like. But he's not Bill Peters. At least I don't think so. So Dan Carcillo and a few more guys. And, you know, Dan Carcillo, I respect everything he did. I respect what he's doing for people with concussions. But there's... Then he brings hazing into it. Okay, so there's hazing in hockey. Hazing in all sports, I guess. Now I know it was something. And people can talk up with their story, stories... And, they, and I get it. I can't, I can't speak for every, especially hazing was a big thing in junior. In the NHL, for the most part, even in my era, they'd have a rookie meal. I'm pissed off. I had to pay for it twice because you're going to be a rookie once. But uh, <laughs> I was a rookie three years in a row. I got games in the NHL, and I never passed that 20-game mark or whatever that you need to be not rookie. So I was a rookie three years in a row. They didn't make, it, make me pay for it the third time. But that was basically it. And you might, I remember we had to do karaoke, me and uh, Darcy Tucker. Then in junior, I'll tell you what we Which had Which I'm do. sure you hated. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I had a good time. We picked uh, we picked the locomotion though, so because it was the it was a, a minute fifty five. It was the shortest song, and I didn't love it that particular night because we were at a nice restaurant in Montreal. Little Eva or Kylie uh, Minogue? No, which Little version? Eva. Little okay. Eva. Proper Little Eva. So yeah, right. So Little Eva, I knew that the song was short, and we were pretty drunk, and they popped it on us at the last time at the last minute, and I didn't really know anybody in there, and I was a lot younger. Now it wouldn't matter, as you know, I'll get on stage any day, any time. Sing a tune, whatever. Uh, but I also knew all the words, so I didn't have to look at the screen. So I, that was also, a, you know, I could go table to table and kind of do my thing without looking, and that was also a feather in my cap at the time, or so I thought. But anyway, in junior, here was what we had to do, and a lot of people are going to get offended by this. So before I get into anything else, I'm going to tell you what we had to do in junior. So Tri-City Americans. I'm 16. Uh, Quinnell, actually, we had one that was junior A. It's pretty standard. They shaved my head, and they yeah, shaved my body. And, um, you know, we had to... It, it, it wasn't anything sexual on that one, really. Um, on the night of the rookie party, I got laid. I remember that, and the boys helped set it up. But it wasn't a thing of, like, throw you in a room and, here, come out with this girl. Or It wasn't nothing like that. It wasn't forced. 
it was just like a fun time we had. <clears throat> and in Tri-City, so people say, well, you know, a lot of these things get sexual. I, I don't know if they get sexual. Like, I, I don't know the psychology of it, but it's, I guess it's to embarrass you. So we were on a bus on the way to our Eastern Swing. I was playing in Tri-City, which is in the Western Division of the Western Hockey League. But some of the teams in the East are, are like, like Brandon's like a 30-hour bus ride, man. <clears throat> when it's said and done after stops and you know prince george we're in our division that's 16 hours away so there's a lot of bus rides so they do, all the boys do is wait for a bus drive ride and we had five rookies on the team at that time so they tied all of our clothes up in knots like all of it together they tied all of it in a ball and all five of us had to get naked into the bathroom they turned out the light and they threw the bottle of clothes in so we had to come out i, I know again i I, I, this sounds fucked up, but I really thought it was funny. I, I didn't really care at all at the time. And it's funny because, you know, you're in there, a bunch of guys sweating. I mean, it, it was certainly sounds odd now and in this day and age, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it's dark. I'm going like, and there's guys everywhere. Like, and you're moving yours and you can feel this bond. You got to untie it and then you got to feel around. Oh, my cup, my shirt got three fucking buttons on it. BJ, BJ, what's this? Is this your shoe? Justin, Justin guy, is this it? So, you know, one guy's up, one guy's down. There's cocks everywhere. It's fucking, <laughs> yeah, it's awkward, right? It's awkward. I know it sounds fucking crazy, but like, I didn't see anything, but, but I'm not going to say I had fun, but we had to come out with the right clothes on. So if you don't, you know, you face a series of whatever it was at the time, like uh, we had to chug a beer. Um, and then after like three beers, uh, we had to recite our name and address within 10 seconds or else, and it was like a fine or whatever it was. It was this series of nothing too bad. That was the worst of it. Then they actually, at the end of it, none of us could come out with the right clothes on because it was impossible and they had it all together. So they stopped the bus and our coaches weren't on it. They'd already driven up ahead and, um, they, they threw it out and they threw the ball out in the middle of the fucking snow in Regina. If anything, I guess we might've caught a cold. But, um, and we, we, we put it on, we came back in, and when we got to where we were going, I remember they made us go to the front of a movie theater. Maybe it was when we got back. It was Ace Ventura, I think, and I had to sing a song. So I, I, I and we had to dress up in drag. So just, right. just, just, just one thing as a point yeah. of clarity for me. You're on a bus, and the bus pulls over so that they can throw the clothes out and you guys can, and, and then wait for you guys to go find it and, and put it yeah, on. Yeah, well, the bus was in. pulling over anyway because there was, back then there was people that smoked. Okay, so I, I'm yeah. like my just curiosity was like your coaches were ahead, but like the bus driver was 100 percent on board. Oh yeah, for just torturing you. Slip guys. him, slip him a hundred bucks. Like the All bus right. driver, yeah, yeah. I forget his name. He was wild. Um, and I again, these are such just that dude from the Mighty Ducks. Remember the guy in the Mighty Ducks who used to yes. drive the team around? That guy that was just like kind of yeah, yeah just, right. you know, do him a favor. He was happy to be with the Tri City Americans, right? And even though it's a WHL team, whatever, every year there's draft picks. Tri-City had a strong history. So there's guys in the NHL on the bus, and that's all the guy knew, and he loved it. Or going to be in the NHL. Um, so, yeah, he pulled over, and we did that. And then yeah, I remember singing a song or something. It was a packed, packed house. And anyway, it was just meant to embarrass you. And once you went through that, everything was cool. And really, I didn't feel – I mean, I, I did have – there was a couple of vets that were pretty hard on guys. But honestly, I, if someone was too hard on me, I would say, go fuck yourself or I'll punch you in the head. You know, there, there's a point that you have to stick up for yourself. And, you know, if you the other rookies with you know that. And it's almost like, you know, that if you've got a good leader, he'll never make it too bad because you want the team to win and you want success. And, again, it was a different fucking era and culture. I'm sure that that shit wouldn't happen today. I'm not, I'm not sure of it, but it's not regular. That sort of thing happened in the Western League all the time. I heard all kinds of stories. I heard guys had to fucking sprint across the fucking 
room with a grape in their fucking ass cheeks and if it fell out or it was a race and it fell out, someone else had to eat the grape. I, I don't fucking know. I heard all these stories. All I can say is that the coaches for the vast majority of the time did not know about that shit. They knew we were going to get hazed, but they didn't go along with it. So Carcillo, when he's saying all this hockey culture, that's up to your captains. So if I'm playing in London, Ontario or Kamloops and, you know, say Kamloops, Darcy Tucker's my captain in the mid-90s. Okay, Jerome McGinley's there. Shane Doan, these are the rookies that you're talking about. Now, fuck, you, what are you, you Kamloops players, you get a chance for a Memorial Cup. If you get a fucking idiot for a captain, he's probably going to scar those guys mentally. But again, the coach didn't know about it. Right, it wasn't a coach's decision. These are teenagers that are coming up with games. But the way Dan Carcillo is framing it is that all these adults are responsible. But it wasn't the case. And I've been through, I've, I've, I've scouted for teams I've played, I, I was in junior for seven years. I started as a 14-year-old, right? I played all over the minors. We had rookies everywhere we went, right? Look at the fucking list. So I'm still playing senior hockey. We had a rookie party the other night. I'm telling you that the players, and the older you get, that shit stops because you, come, because you become an adult and you realize, you know what? Maybe it's not a good idea to be fucking scurrying my teammates mentally, but when you're in, you know what I mean? If captains and juniors, some of them are 17 years old, right? At the most, they're 20, at the very most, and they're turning that after Christmas. So, you know, it, it's an immature practice, yeah, but they're immature people, right? Uh, well, go ahead. I was just going to ask, and, and this is just an aside again, because uh, yeah. my role is to be devil's advocate, I guess, um, is... How much of the of the selection process of the captain, like every team you do, do it as a team vote, or was it assigned by the coach? Uh, and what assigned by the coach? The captaincy. Oh, it's all different wherever you go. Yeah, so I mean that can that can vary, and then yeah. of course the coach's complacency with knowledge of how extreme things are getting, and if it is yeah. a captain who's like that, I can see being an argument of like, well, at the end of the day, the coach is the person that's responsible for this group of young, bo- like you know, young men so and I young guess boys. It's his, his so, so that's that's just well, to, to, to that's be, that's just again, just just to make that point. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, but again, the coach, any team I've been on, again, if I'm still playing, and we're talking about 1991, when I, you know, the coach in my experience, has never been involved in any way. Like, you got to keep this out of the coaches. Mm-hmm. It's equivalent to if something went down at school. I can never see my coach, Bob Lauks getting in trouble if I got in a fist fight at Kamaikan High School. It just, it just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Um, and I know that's happened, but I don't put it on the coach. I guess if some people do, fine. But I certainly don't think in the way of this kind of backlash that it's part of the culture, because it's not. Now, I'll tell you something else. People in junior, for the most part, because when, when you're talking hazing, you're mostly talking junior in college. Again, because people older don't get off on that, and there's millions of dollars involved, and they've grown a little bit. But when you're talking about hazing in junior hockey, the... How can I... I know the coach should... I guess be responsible for the players, but the, but the players know that. And that's why they choose to do their own thing. Like the, the, the each, each one of these years, most of them that I'm talking about, the coach set up a meal for rookies or whatever it might be, or we went out. Um, and sometimes like he might know that, you know, tonight you guys, okay, wait, are you having a rookie party? Here's the cabs are going to be there. You got to be in by 11. Remember that happening, mm-hmm. right? You got to be in 11. 
Cabs are going to be there. Is there anything you guys need? Is there anything I should know? So he's trusting now. Something happens at that party. I still don't really put it on the coach. I know how some people would, but painting everything with the same brush and then all of a sudden saying this is the hockey culture because it's not. And what, sorry, what I was getting at earlier, a lot of these coaches, especially the junior teams, these players don't have much money and they're coming in from all over the country slash all over the world. And the coaches have to be, they're not only coaches, they're there to set up your billets. They're there. I mean, how many times did I call Bob Laux or Rick Carrier or uh, Rick Kozebeck, you know, in, in almost in tears, whether I was homesick, whether O'Donnell, my, my would-be high school, won the championship, I wanted to be with my buddies, whether I fucking was getting stalked by a fan, whether my billets were fucking having parties too late and I wanted to go to another place. And I had no one to talk to because I'm fucking 5,000 miles away from home. This is everything that I'll point to Bob Laux more than anybody else because he was my junior coach for a couple of important years in junior. I was going through a lot. You're up for the draft, you know, and you're going through all that pressure and he helps you out. Most are there for that reason. Most. And once you get to pro in that era, a lot of coaches were hard on you. That's the way it was. Looking back, and I've never been that approach. Ask anybody I've ever coached. Ask any team I've ever played on. I've been loosey-goosey. My role would be to get the boys laughing, get them going. I don't know how to play that other Michelle Therrien role. I don't like it, but some people played that role. Mike Keenan, um, Bob Hartley. I hear the Sutters, but there's a big difference between being a racist and being hard on somebody. Now, I get that some people might have been offended back then, but you know what? For the majority of the time, they went to someone, they talked about it, and if they didn't, I'm sorry, but you should have. But they're not criminal acts. And, and what Bill Peters did was disgusting and awful and stupid. But please, and you know some of these hazing stories? Yes, man. Someone makes you whack off when you don't want to? Well, there's a problem. It's probably within your team somewhere, whether it's the captain, whether it's with your self-confidence going in, because if someone said that to me, I'd bat him in the fucking head. I wouldn't care who it was, right? But for the most part, in a hockey dressing room, you learn the attributes that it takes to be successful in every other walk of life after hockey's over. And coaches are the main fucking reason for that. And for every story that you hear, even with Mike Babcock, I can tell you about... Danny Cleary, who he saved his goddamn career. Cleary was going overseas. That was it for Dan Cleary. And now he's a Stanley Cup champion. I can tell you about Jason Padolin, one of the guests we have, that says if it wasn't for Mike Babcock, he would never have gotten drafted that high. Right? Second rounder, I think, Pods was. And they both have some crazy stories about Mike Babcock. And I think the, the, the one that kicks home to me is the Mike Medano, 1,499 games, and he sat him for the last few games of the year. That's a fucking dick move. But it doesn't make the hockey culture... Um, a racist one, right? We're, we're talking with everybody now is in the last few days talking about hockey while it's racist and the hazing and, you know, there's so much ugliness. Well, by, you know, one or two people can be spurned on by something and I get it, but I think all these coaches might start to say some shit too. You know, what wouldn't we, wouldn't we all be interested in what a lot of these coaches could say, right? Oh, what about the fucking time I caught you screwing a hooker in the back, Johnny, with blow on your fucking face? Because that happens. It doesn't happen a lot, but shit has happened and coaches have seen shit, right? Hey, Jimmy, what about the fucking steroids you didn't tell anybody about? And before we start fucking throwing stones at glass houses, I just want to be clear. There's a lot of pricks out there. And hockey coaches, 
A lot of them at the time were bred to be like that. It's not a good fucking thing either. But it's not today. It's not today's culture. It is moving ahead fast. And once we find out something like Bill Peters, he's fucking gone and he should be. But Bill Peters is not Mike Babcock. And he's not Michelle Tyrion. There's a difference. Anyhow, Mike, have you got anything to say to that? Nope. I, saw, I, know, I, get, I, know, I, get, I know I get fired up. But I mean, it's my fucking... You know, it was my livelihood for a long time, and the game did a lot for me, and the friendships I made and everything else, even with coaches that were goddamn hard on me. Kirk Tomlinson, there's one. He was hard on me, and he was hard on everybody in Colorado Springs. Gunner, they called him, an ex-AHL tough guy. But Gunner fucking texts me every year. How you doing, T-Bone? How you doing, man? You know, it was just uh, it was a different game, but so be it. Now, just a little bit of time left uh, for, for this little bit of a preamble, but I want to thank... Um, Tyler Morrison, first of all, uh, for having me uh, at the, uh, the hockey uh, or the Fight Stories podcast. But he flew me up to um, Alora and Bracebridge, Ontario on the weekend a few days ago. And we did a show in Bracebridge. What a spot. Oh, these are, uh, Bracebridge is in Muskoka. Um, just a beautiful little town, uh, 20,000, 30,000 people. And we did a nice little bar there. Uh, actually, I can't. Or the thirsty judge, that was it, the thirsty judge, and um, we had. It, to be honest, Mike, I didn't tell you there was there was some there was a lot of spit and chicklets fans. There was a few third man in fans. There, a lot of them overlap, and uh, a few Newfoundlanders. And you got great comments, by the way, you and Chuck on third man in. Thanks. Um, and uh, it was a great time. And every time at one of these events, you know, I go up and, and my my deal is it's a comedy show, but I'm a one trick pony. So the comedians go up. And we had uh, Manilis, I call him Manny Zintanos, I believe was his name, and Max Sheldrick. And so thanks to them, too, um, because they're, they're, you know, they're actual comedians. Uh, but when, when they, when they pre-advertise it, the people that showed up tend to like hockey stories. So I'll get up and do, do a little blurb like they do. And then at the end, we all sit down and we have a, a, a podcast, a live podcast kind of thing. Kind of thing, but it's much like the thing we did at the rec room. You, you can't really just look at each other and have a podcast. you got to entertain in some way. So, you know, we're, we're very much interactive and we're... Wait, uh, did we entertain at the rec room? Right. I don't know. Well, there's too many classes <laughs> clanging and everything else and I was drunk. Um, it, was, it was very similar to that. Very similar. Uh, except the rec room was a bit distracting because there's so much going on. There's like bowling and there's, and there's you know, th- this was... The machines were turned off and everything. They didn't yeah. want any other sounds. So it was uh, very clear. And it was, it was... The point being, there's these... Um, the people that came out, thanks to everybody, but uh, in Allura especially, after you, you talk to some fans, and uh, man, the more places I go and we talk about concussions and everything, um, I'm thinking maybe, I, I don't know how we're going to channel this into a golf tournament, but people always come up and they talk to me and they're like, you know, thanks for coming out about mental health. And I didn't really come out much about it. I just said that I went through, I had concussions back in the day and uh, I, I don't know, like, and, I, and then all of a sudden I was an NHL failure, I, I thought, so I don't know if that was on my mind, which would be natural or... You know, the concussions helped to a bit or helped give me these symptoms added to it. But, you know, I've had anxiety. I'm, I'm very high strung, if you can't tell. Um, I mean, come on. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I get depressed a lot. Um, but I also, you know, my nature, I've, I've had a lot of ups and a lot of downs. I mean, in one week, like I said, I just did a show in front of people um, as a comedian. And the earlier that week, I got separated um, from my wife. We're on good terms, by the way. Um and and I lost my job, right? But then next week, I'll probably be in a movie with Jason Momoa, not, not planned, but, you know, that sort of thing happens. 
Um, you know, I might one day, you know, get some kind of crazy injury like kidney stones, which happened last February. The next week, I'm up in uh, Touring Labrador with Ally Afraidy and, uh, you know, uh, Brian Trache and some other NHL legends. So I, I don't dwell on a lot of things a lot. I just know that when I, if I get anxiety, Mike, I'm up all night. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone, in the last two weeks, I haven't slept. I'm, I'm not kidding you one bit. I haven't slept more than four hours at night. And when I lost my job, I was awake till Sunday. I take apoalpralazam. They're like a generic form of Ativan, so I'm told. I put five in my system. I couldn't knock myself out. That's how I get anxiety. It feels like freight trains through my elbows and through my knees and my ankles. For whatever reason, my joints, I got to keep moving. I've often thought, like, do I have early MS or what is it? Because I'm moving around. But it's just crazy, crazy anxiety. And it doesn't come on like a lot of people think, you know, you got something to worry about. So like if I've got a test tomorrow, oh, I've got anxiety. Well, maybe, but you're, you're worried about the test. That's half natural. Sometimes I'm just driving down the street in a good mood and boom, it'll hit me like a wall. And I got to go in like a, a, I got to fucking start telling myself, you know, this is going to pass. Like a real bad anxiety hangover, except I get it in the middle of the day. And then all of a sudden I feel really like I'm going to have a panic attack. But I've learned, I've learned how to deal with it. And, and if that's a mental health, I, I'm sure it is. But I never really, really saw it fully on that way until people started approaching me. And they said, you know, I, I don't really come out about it much and I get the same feelings. And I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg. Then there's people that have suicidal thoughts and everything else. I know how that goes. It's happened to me way off in the past. I'm not ashamed to say it, though. It happened. I mean, I did nearly go bankrupt a few years ago and needed to provide for my family. It wasn't a good time. And, you know, the scope of all this before my book came out, you know, I was known as a failure on an epic, you know, an epic level. So a lot of what happened to me, I think, is just human nature. So a lot of these, you know, symptoms might be spurned on by the fact that I failed on a colossal level in one sense. And I'm an only child, so growing up, uh, my teammates were like my my best buddies and my brothers, my brothers. So, you know, the further I get from my glory years of hockey, I guess subconsciously, I'm not seeing those people as much. And that sometimes plays on my, you know, once in a while someone will die, even though I'm, in, I'm 42, but, you know, just when you play with so many players, and, you know, at this point, you know, I was coming in, there was 35-year-olds, you know, so people are in their mid-50s. I'm hearing all the time, you hear people die, and I guess it puts shit in reality. And so my reasons, I guess, have always seemed normal, but I know the anxiety I get is not normal. And for the kids, I'm not going to say what their names are. There's two of them. And they were great, and they came to the show, and they were almost in tears because they could identify. And when they listened to our show that we had Mike on Third Man In, mm-hmm. I've talked about this a couple times. Well, other people have left comments. Well, it's, it, that's all it takes. People look at those comments, and they'll go, oh, I got someone to identify with. And then they'll talk to each other. Yeah. So I never saw it that way. I never, ever saw it that way. Right, but right, right. I guess a lot of people, so if, if, if we're doing that, mm-hmm. Then I can't imagine what 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 Chicklets and those shows who had Brent Sopel on recently, mm-hmm. who's illiterate or not illiterate, um, d- dyslexic, and you know that's a major thing too. And if if you're dyslexic, that can spurn on. Of course, you're gonna have anxiety I mean, issues. Of course, you can be depressed if if you're dyslexic. Uh, you know because if you're in a room, it, it can lead to embarrassing situations and and a lack of self confidence. Well, I mean even. Just speaking from that, on Third Man, in a few weeks ago, we had Eddie Shack, and Eddie Shack was is is famously He's illiterate. He famously was somebody illiterate. who uh, played up, played into it. At one, once he kind of came out about being illiterate, it was something where he worked with literacy groups and he raised yeah. awareness for it, and he tried to 
you know, because all these all these sorts of things are about stigmas. And when you have conversations with them uh, about them, um, it can help it can help change uh, perceptions and that sort of thing. And I think to some degree, even the stuff that you're talking about with coaches and, and things like that can kind of fall back. Definitely and thinking about it that way, too, and that it might not necessarily be a case of, um, you know, oh, my like, you know. I'm, I'm seeing people talk about a bunch of different stuff uh, regarding coaching and stuff over the years. And, and I mean, it's something that uh, we can get into another time about some, you know, everybody's different experiences with stuff like that. But um, it's just, you know, getting it out there. Sometimes it's just one thing is letting people know that it's something you experience and, and something you go through and, and, and doing that can help for a lot of people. And so having that conversation is important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is. And uh, sometimes, you know, you take it for granted. But uh, I see this, you know, a lot of times as a platform for other things, um, almost in a selfish way. I, I like that people listen. But I'm like, you know, when are we going to sell some ads? When am I going to get a public speaking engagement? Um, I'm glad people like it. But to actually affect people's lives is, is a big deal. So I appreciate those guys being so uh, open-minded and open in their hearts and uh, having those conversations that night. And the next night, actually, was in uh, Elora, Ontario. And it's a great horse track there. It's a tiny little spot. But the Christmas praise was happening that night. What a beautiful, beautiful little little town. Not sure how many people. I'm guessing ten or 15,000. It reminded me of Gander or Grand Falls. A little big bridge going through the middle of the town. And just, it looked like Pleasantville. Bo- both places. What, what great optics of downtown areas, small town Canada, totally. But, uh, you know, another thing I like about that, so thanks to everybody that had me out. Um, and uh, if you go to Tyler Morrison's or Fight Stories podcast, if you, uh, if you go to those Instagram or Twitter accounts, uh, you know, he, he, Tyler Morrison, just go to his. Uh, he's a great comedian. He's fucking unbelievably funny. And uh, you, you, he'll, he has posted uh, our show if, if you're interested. And he's got a great podcast himself, so I encourage that. But uh, one thing, yeah, you always meet great people. So I, I thought about it. You know, I, I don't see every city for what it really is because not, not that I'm saying these places are bad, but what, people ask me, you know, why are your experiences so good? It, you know, you always talk about these good things. Talk about the bad. Well, once you're done playing, and you know, a lot of these aren't, but you, everybody we meet has open arms. So I'm sure that in Bracebridge that night, like there was probably some guy that got drunk and, and got in a fight somewhere. I, I don't know. There's negative things happen everywhere. But every town that you go to, and the same thing with the NHL alumni, or what is it, think Heart and Stroke Weekend when they come here, right? You're being, everybody wants to do what they can for you. Everybody's hospitable. Um, so the reason, because a lot of people, you know, send me messages and I get, if I don't get back to you right away, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the fans, on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, like, please don't be upset. It's getting to the point. I mean, hundreds of messages, and it's hard to get back. In the morning, I take uh, two and three hours just to get through them. Um, most of them are messages of support. Um, some of them are questions, and maybe 10% are just people throwing daggers. <laughs> and some people go, oh, you're fucking only telling one side of the story. Well, A, not always, but yeah, I tend to want to be positive. So I'm going to tell a funny story to you. I'm probably not going to tell you about when I stubbed my toe and broke it on the way if it doesn't fit the story and, you know, I had to go to the hospital the next day or whatever it might be or someone that yelled a racist remark on the way to the fucking place that we went to that particular night. I'm just not, I'm going to stay away from that because I'm here, you know, I, I want to be honest with everybody, but I like to promote positivity. And this, the, the, the places that hockey has taken me have been nothing but positive and um, people have been hospitable and um just overly welcoming 
So obviously there are some bad stories. I mean, I did fucking mention I knocked my teeth out with a goddamn hammer, didn't I? Well, what happens is that fucking hurts. So that can always also be framed as negative. <laughs> um, my Mike Milbury story, I tell with a joke, but you could say, oh, he was being a prick to an 18-year-old. Or... Michelle Tarion, you know that Mike, story? But Mike Milbury also beat a man with his own shoe. He did. So, like, let's, you know. Yeah, yeah. He did, and I could talk about that. But even there, it's funny, right? <laughs> it's funny now to look back, and I see it as funny, and I like to see the humor in things. I mean, if you want to tune in to, the, uh, you know, a grim show or <laughs> something fucking negative, I don't even know what to recommend uh, to you, um, if you want fact or fiction or what. But, you know, I, I tend to be real on here, but... You know, the experiences that I share with people, are, that's what I'm seeing the world with. But I choose to see it through that. I could probably do something else, and I could answer people on Twitter that are totally negative. I do sometimes, but not a lot. <laughs> you know, when I'm asked questions on TV about people, I guess I could paint it with a different brush. But I want to be positive. I mean, isn't it the pursuit of happiness life? I mean, what is it? So I, I, I tend to try to be positive. Um, you know, if you got any specific, if, if someone knows a story and, and, and wants a specific, wants me to tell it, all good. You know, I, like I said, Brian Burrard's coming on and there's just a lot to unpack there. It's a layered conversation. But even there, like, you know, the first time I really met Brian face to face, we, we fought. We got in a fight. <laughs> and, you know, he could see that as a terrible thing and so could I. But, you know, we got over it. We're buddies now. And, you know, it's, it's a positive story because that's the way I packaged it. But at the time, I guess, you know, it was very nerve-wracking. We're on national TV. I'm punching a guy in the face with my knuckles that's hitting his orbital bone. I mean, it could have ended a lot worse. But anyway, th that's my point. Um, I really appreciate uh, be people being so welcoming. And uh, thanks again to Alora Embrace Bridge, Tyler Morrison, everybody involved. I had an unfucking believable time. Uh, with that, um, I believe... It gives us time to slip in the interview. What do you think, Mike? I think so. I think it's a great time to go to the interview. Okay, well, here, here it is, people. I hope you enjoy it. Um, this guest, um, I don't need any more of an intro than I'm about to give. That way, <laughs> wink, wink. But uh, great guy, great fella, great person. Hockey or not hockey, uh, or no hockey, he's a character. And you'll hear all about it right now on Tales with TR. Enjoy. This is the Hockey Podcast Network, your home for hockey talk on every team in the NHL. Ladies and gentlemen, my next guest is a former Mount, Sale, Mount St. Charles Mountie, Detroit Junior Red Wing, Detroit Junior Whaler, New York Islander, Toronto Maple Leaf, New York Ranger, Boston Bruin, Chicago Blackhawk, Columbus Blue Jacket, Vityaz Chekhov, Team USA member on various levels. He is... The wound socket wizard, the draft king and former wing, a dangling defenseman, a prestigious pick, an advantageous investor, is potent on the power play. He likes to brawl and went first overall. He's a legend like Davy Crockett and comes from wound socket. You need a scorer type of guy? He'll fucking do it with one eye. He carried a big stick and wound up first pick. If you have a problem, call us. By the way, his middle name is Wallace. Holy moly, he was drafted for Toronto's goalie. He likes his eggs runny and knows a lot about money. I'm Terry Ryan, and his name is Brian. He talks about a crook in his awesome new book. He was the talk of the town when he threw me down. Man alive, that was 1990 fucking five. Ladies and gentlemen, my good pal, Brian Berard. <laughs> That's a damn good intro, I'll tell you There that. you go. I should have been your Impressive. agent, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what a suitcase, by the way. <laughs> suitcase, we'll get into hey, that. Thanks for, having me. thanks for having me. 
Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, so listen, we'll get right into it. Brian, I'm going to quickly ask you a question um, that because uh, I don't want to skip over it. And, uh, you know, basically a lot of people, it's on their radar because they remember it being in the news. You admitted to taking steroids. It's only you and a guy, Dave Morissette, that I played with that I remember doing it, that coming out uh, and, and admitting this in a book and talking about it. So, I, I mean, what's the obvious? You know, why, when, where, all the above? It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that I definitely talk about. I admitted it. Obviously, I got caught. Uh, at that time, it wasn't illegal in the NHL. Uh, but for me, it was just to come back from injury. I mean, a lot of people understand my eye injury, but the surgeries that I had to go through, um, I got hurt. I was probably playing at, you know, 6'1", 199, at 203, 203 pounds. Um, when I was done all my surgeries and start working out, I was uh, no muscle because all the anesthesia. And I was about 235 pounds and was out of shape um, and just felt like crap trying to get back on the ice and working. Um, and really, it was just really in the gym. So just started, I mean, I didn't you know, buy the steroids off the street. And I, I went through the right, the right channels and did through the doctors. And, and it just, it oh, just okay. helped me kind of recover and uh, recover and get me back into the game. Um, I wasn't, the, when I got tested, I was in Columbus. Uh, when I got tested, I was not on steroids. It was just still in my system. Um, and really, honestly, that was the last time I used it. Um, but that's basically what it was still the doctors thought it would be out of my system in a few months. I stopped before training camp and I get tested in October because I was on some Olympic list. Uh, so WADA tested me um, and I tested positive. Um, and obviously it was still in my system, but I, I tested through the PA about a month later and it was out of my system. Uh, I don't say it was bad luck because I, I made a mistake. I was taking it, but I really thought I needed some help um, getting back into getting back to my body. Um, and, and my eye injury changed my body forever. I, when I was back and I was fine, I, I played at six uh, one, about two twenty, two eighteen. So I definitely lost a little bit of my quickness, I think, which was an asset, which maybe hurt a little bit. Um, but that's kind of what mentally I felt like I needed to kind of get me back to, the, to to play at that top level. And obviously, when I got busted, I, I admitted it. Uh, you know, I, I made a mistake. Um, you know, I don't want to be a bad example for the young kids out there. It's not healthy. It, you know, it can hurt you. But I, at that time, I you know I was coming back from a, a pretty traumatic injury, and, and I thought I needed it. Well, in today's day and age uh, of social media and everything else, there aren't a lot of second chances. I remember hearing about that, and the hockey community opened their arms. I don't remember, I don't remember what your penalty was, and I think you were the first NHL player t- to test positive. That's why I remember it. But um, you know, what, yeah, what, there was no there was, there was no penalty. Okay. There was no penalty at all. It was just a bad. Pre- it was bad press because it was, it was not illegal in the NHL at that time. Yeah, and it was bad press. I mean, everything that you told me makes total I think, sense. I don't think you're the only exactly. person to do it. I, I by think, the way, I don't think you're the. I, you know, I think I had a. Two, a no, no way. I think I had a two-year ban from uh, from U.S. Uh, from Olympic uh, Olympic competition. Okay, well, and the boys on your team probably didn't even bat an eyelash. Not at all. Not at all. Well, they probably knew I was doing it because I, I was putting up uh, some serious weight on the bench press. So <laughs> they probably they probably knew I was I was uh, <laughs> on something because I was. I mean, I think I still have the uh, Boston Bruins uh, bench press record. I think I've up 225, like 36 times or something. So I was still uh, so, so I was pretty strong. Holy shit. I want to know, and I'll tell you why I want to know what it was like growing up in Woonsocket. And you know the reason, because in November of 94, 95, when we were looking for a goalie in Tri-City, and uh, myself and Damon Lankow were rated pretty high, and we knew how that went. And the year before, we had a couple guys, Sheldon Surrey, go high in the draft. 
And so anyway, we heard about this goalie that, you know, should, you know, he really has kind of been screwed over and he's playing in Ontario right now, but trust us, like this guy's so good, he might even get drafted. And he ended up going in the first round at the end of that year. His name is Brian Boucher. He came to Tri-Cities and Tri-City, Brian, were a team. I don't know how Detroit were, but Tri and Seattle in the Western League would think outside the box. They'd get guys like me from Newfoundland, Brent Ashcroft from Rochester, um, uh, uh, New York. They'd get Brian. They'd get B.J. Young from Alaska. They kind of picked all over, and they had their ways around it. But Bush came in. What a guy. What a friend to me. Still talk. Now, tell us about growing up in Woonsocket, and how close were you to Bush? You mean you must have been? Well, uh, honestly, best friends probably from first grade on, uh, still today. Um, uh, Bush, so Brian, the back up of the Woonsocket, Rhode Island. So Woonsocket was an old textile town. That a lot of French Canadians came down uh, from Quebec, and Brian's family is from from uh, I think just outside Montreal, uh, small town in Quebec. So his parents really just spoke French. Um, so I, I started, we started hanging out in first grade. Obviously, we grew up playing with soccer and North Stars together, and obviously, basically straight through played hockey all growing up with soccer and North Stars, Mount Saint Charles Academy, and then both Bush kind of took a little different path. Brian always kind of wanted to play college. I wanted to play major junior, and, and was kind of. I guess ranked and rated to go high in, in, in the 95 draft. And Bush was kind of, I mean, our team was really good in high school. So Bush didn't see a lot of shots um, and had some injuries. And, and so really nobody knew what Bush was. Uh, and then Bush went, went up and uh, Bush went up and played in the Wexford Raiders, a junior yes. team up in Toronto area. And really, you know, he, to be honest with you, he could not stand his billet. I guess there was an older woman. I guess she smoked all the time. And wow. he just kind of like hated there. And just in the middle of the night, basically packed up. And I, I believe that he must have been talking to Tri-Cities. And, and I know the story. And then basically went to the, you, your guys' team, which which I obviously you know I knew of you guys because of the old Red Line report and some of the uh, central scouting uh, you know yeah. rankings and stuff. And then uh, with Surrey as well. So I knew he was going to a pretty, pretty damn good team. So I was kind of pumped for him. And then obviously the, the draft in Edmonton, he goes first round. So both of both. Both Woonsocket uh, natives uh, coming from a small town going in the first round, which was, was pretty unbelievable. Well, he was part, yeah, he made history for two reasons. Like, two guys from Woonsocket, and for us, three guys that went in the first round. And at the beginning of that year, I mean, I, I was expecting to get drafted. I don't know if I would have thought eighth overall. I know Lanks wouldn't have thought fifth. And I, we didn't know who Bush was in September. And a few months later, you know, within that calendar year, he's getting drafted first round. But... To get back to that, so I'm trying to picture it, and I've been there once. I, I used to go, do you remember Paul Vincent had hockey schools in Cape Cod? Did you, did, yeah, did you even and I knew, the, I knew the son too because yeah. Yeah, he went to Christian Academy with a bunch of uh, guys that were my age and friends, so I knew the son as well too. I never went to any of his, uh, what they call it, dynamic uh, power skating schools, I think back then, they Paul Vincent mm. dynamic schools or something That's like that. That's what but, they were, yeah. And his son was, a, you know, yeah, his son was a big, big, tall kid, good, good player as well. I really never kept in touch with him. I don't know what happened to him, but he was a pretty good player. And the, and the father had a lot, a lot of good, good uh, hockey players go to those schools. Yeah, so I and I love the area, and I, I honestly, I still say it. My favorite place to have a beer in the world is Fenway Park. Um, uh, it, I mean, Boston has become Boston's become a great city. I mean, it was always a good city. It's become even a better city now, and, and, and I enjoy Boston a lot. It's kind of when I retired in 2009, uh, 2008, 2009, I went over to Russia for a year, but then I kind of came back, and that's why I kind of came back. I lived in New York City to about 2014, and then all my family's from, you know, New England and, and Rhode Island, and, and, and still I enjoy Boston a lot, actually. Uh, I work in Providence, Rhode Island, but I was in Boston last night, and, and I enjoy that. That's what I love about it. Yeah, that's what I love about it, and that's why I love going to Vincent. I mean, I needed to work on my skating. So I'd just go there and do it because there was so much close, and that's when I made it over to Woonsocket. Now, neither you and Bo- or Bush was there. 
Um, the last time I saw you was actually at Harry O's in uh, L.A. a long, long time ago, other than watching you play. We'll get into that after. But so explain Mount St. Charles Academy, because uh, I don't think people realize how the impact of that school in Rhode Island. Just explain a little bit about it. Oh, high school hockey used to be a big thing. Unfortunately, it's not anymore, but it used to be a big thing in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Um, and the teams like Mount St. Charles Academy, uh, Catholic Memorial, um, before even prep school hockey was big, you kind of went to your, you, you know, you, I would say private schools. Mount St. Charles is a private Catholic school in a small town of Woonsocket. Uh, Woonsocket, like I talked back then, was a good, good old French-Canadian town. It's, it's changed a little bit now. It's kind of a tough town, uh, multicultural, but it's, it's um, it's still a great city. It's had some great tradition with big, good baseball players as well, like Rocco Baldelli, who just won Manager of the Year for the Minnesota Twins. His old man's from from Woonsocket, so it's got some good athletes and some good good uh, sport tradition um, and history. Um, but Mount was just a powerhouse. So myself and Mr. Boucher, Brian's dad, used to take us to Mount games all the time. Um, you know, growing up, probably from you know elementary school, and and that was a, that was me and Boosh playing you know street hockey out there. We wanted to go to Mount St. Charles, and, and we both did it seventh grade. Uh, we went from seventh grade to, to our junior year, which is eleventh grade here in the states. Um, and, and that was it. I mean, but we we dominated, and, and that's unfortunately towards it. You know, they used to have some great competition between Mount and Hendrickson and guys like David Emma and David Capuano and those guys played. But Mount St. John's has produced like Matthew Schneider, Keith Carney, Gar Snow, oh. um, Dave Capuano, myself, uh, Brian Boucher, uh, Jeff Jilson. Um, so it's, it's, it's for a small school, wow. a, uh, a lot of NHL players. So it's, it's pretty impressive. Wow. That's unbelievable. I didn't, uh, I didn't realize there was so many from there. Um, so I, I believe the first time I played against you, you it was under seventeen, uh, in, in in Quebec somewhere, Amos Quebec or Rwanda, Rwanda maybe. Yeah, Amos Quebec. That was correct. Like, yeah, I remember going up there, and that was the first kind of big. Uh, I mean, they don't have the, the national programs like they do now, but you kind of make that for the U.S. Probably same as Canada. You make the team, we go up, and that was a that was a pretty cool tournament. I think I think Canada had maybe three, two or three different. Teams yeah, there was there was an Atlantic, and there was Quebec, I Ontario, think. and West. Uh, so yeah, cause I remember yeah. Uh, Quebec was big. Jason Doig, yes, him. He, was, he was a powerhouse back then. I remember him, but uh, yeah, that was a great tournament. I remember my dad was funny because my dad drove up there. Funny story: my dad's a like you know blue collar family. My dad's a mechanic, um, so he drove the family van up there with you know my my siblings and stuff, and, and forgot about how cold it was up there, and oh. didn't realize that you got to kind of you got to plug the uh, kind of plug the engines in, and, and one night uh, his, his engine block froze over, so it cost my dad uh, probably more than he wanted to to come up and see his son play at uh, Select. Uh, was that sixteen or seventeen? Yeah, we we back. call it under seventeen. <laughs> I think you guys call it Select sixteen or something. Actually, yeah, you had yeah. a good player on your team, yeah, I mean, uh, Bubba Brenswick. What happened to him? Brenswick, yeah, he went to Michigan, um, and then. You know who else was on that team? Marty Reasoner was on that yes, team. Yes, Reasoner. Uh, I remember that. Yeah, fuck. Good buddy. Yeah, Reese had a good NHL career. He's a, he's a good buddy of mine. But Bubba kind of uh, just kind of panned out. I mean, he was, a, he, was a, he was a great athlete, great player. Went to Michigan and, and never really kind of could, could, could make it to that next level in the NHL. I think he played in the minors a little bit, but uh, he's doing well now. He's doing a good job and stuff. But I haven't seen a few of those guys in a while. But like Sean Richland, I think, was on that team, played in Michigan. We had, we had a pretty pretty good squad. I think we ended up losing the Quebec. I think we, I think we lost to Quebec in the finals. I think that yeah. Yeah, man, you did. And Doig, who's the correct. big. I remember hearing about Doig, and when I actually saw him, no offense to Doig, Jason, if he's out there, I was like, what in the fuck is this? He can barely skate. But after you watched him for a while, and, I mean, he looked like that. He looked so dangly, and he was awkward to me. He was like this big, tall Bambi on ice. But I remember he scored against you guys in the final, and he could play D or forward, and he ended up being pretty tough. So. 
maybe he, you know, he, he had a decent career for sure. He did. He, he kind of made me eat my words. I just mean on first on first glance, you look at someone and you're like Jesus, you know, like so he kind of surprised me. But I think that's also <laughs> I, why he was good is because he could be. Um, deceptive that way i've always said i'm not putting down turner stevenson but my first camp i was like what in the fuck this guy plays in the nhl but he's just deceiving he didn't look flute great skating or neither did darcy tucker but they got there and i think because you expected something a little slower that they were deceiving and i think that was their their payoff including jason yeah and, and all those guys turned out a great turn and darcy obviously had a great career so um yeah just a little, little awkward i guess so now, this um, go to what made you choose? I assume you chose. We definitely chose the the Canadian route, but uh, the Detroit Junior Red Wings. Honestly, to me, it was uh, for one. I was never a big fan of school, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, you know, playing against uh, the Canadians and playing guys, you know, guys like against you, Lankow. Uh, obviously, Red uh, Redden was our draft year. Doan, again, playing against those guys in, in those uh, national tournaments, um, you know, I thought I could compete with them. Um, I knew we were all kind of ranked pretty high to go in the NHL draft. For me, that, that was my style of hockey. I kind of like to bang it up a little bit. I, I, I enjoyed the fighting aspect, um, and, and I knew that was kind of the best. I still think it's the best way and for players to kind of adapt to the NHL game. Um, we just really – Basically, me and my father had to kind of win over my mother. My mom really wanted me to go to school. That was an issue. Um, so I was able to actually graduate a year early at Mount St. Charles. I took a couple extra classes in my junior year so we could kind of satisfy my mom. Because I really wanted to go up uh, as an underage. I wanted to go up as a 16-year-old player. We went up to see the junior wings, and that's when Harvey, Carnes, yeah. um, you know, they had, a, they had a good team then, too, and a bunch of animals, too, that loved to, to fight. So I remember the first game we went up there and saw there was a big brawl. My mom's like, you're not coming up here. You're only 16. You can't handle it yourself yet. And I kind of loved it. My dad kind of smiled, too. Uh, so I want to go as an underage, and then we kind of worked it out that I would go, you know, as a 17-year-old. But then at that time, I was kind of ranked to go pretty high in the OHL draft, and everyone kind of heard I wanted to go junior. So we kind of had to play a little – some of the, it's in the book too that, that I just came out with, but it, we talk about, we kind of fooled kind of a lot of the other uh, OHL teams as far as I declared to go to the OHL. And then we kind of fooled a lot of the other teams. I signed up, I signed up a letter of intent with Mike Milber at the time, who's the, the head coach oh, for just a short time at Boston college. So a lot of those, uh, you know, junior teams, cause I think Detroit was picking like ninth in the first round that year or something. Um, so we kind of fooled a lot of teams and they didn't want to waste the first round pick. So we kind of had a plan with Jimmy Rutherford that as soon as they would draft me, I would sign with the Detroit junior wings. And, and then the rest was history. That's amazing. And you know, we've got a lot of things in common because at that age, I, I was the same at a, at a very young age, I was rated pretty high and, and I, I left Newfoundland. I didn't really know, you know, we're, we're even further outside, especially at the time that then Woonsocket would have been. And it, because you're still in a hockey-mad territory in the States. It was very recognized, if, if not in Canada. But, you know, in Newfoundland, people knew Newfoundland, but we didn't really have many pro players. Now there's all kinds, right? It opened the door after I came, Danny Cleary. First thing, actually, my dad said to Mike Barnett, and we'll get into that for his, in a second in IMG. I think you might have had Laidlaw. Um, yeah, correct. But, uh, you know, when I was getting into that game and everything, Barnett approached me, and... Uh, Dad said, you know, you, you got to go to Harbor Grace and watch this kid, Danny Cleary, you know, who ended up going to the O, and I'm sure you know Danny. Uh, and then Ryan Klo yep. and Harold Druken actually was a great player. Uh, anyway, so it kind of, but I, I was the first, so I didn't really know what to do. But being a little bit of an outsider, I looked at it, and I had some offers from U.S. College. And I often say, like I, I say to people, I'm like, put yourself in that time. The only league I didn't want to go to, no offense, was the Quebec Major Junior League because it was a real, real – 
you know, the O and the, and the dub were pretty similar. Uh, and, and meaning that I, I thought that it really prepared you for pro the best. You know, you get the bus rides, you got the tough hockey. A lot of these guys in the NHL that play that style are coming right from the O and the dub. I felt, I felt, the, same, I felt the same way with you, so definitely. definitely yeah, agree. exactly. Like, um, so for you, once you get there, um, I got out there. Like you said, you like the fighting a little bit. So for those that don't know, I mentioned a little bit of this in the preamble, but this this was funny because... You and I were both represented by IMG. Weren't you Laidlaw? I was Laidlaw, Tom Laidlaw, correct. Uh, so they were out of Detroit, too, which worked out well oh. at the IMG office. But, uh, you know, Barney was there, yeah. uh, Eddie Mio, and Tom Laidlaw had the office there right in Detroit. They were right in Creektown, so they were, you know, three minutes from the Joe, Joe Lewis Arena, which was great for me. I was lucky enough when I went to Detroit Junior Wings, um, Sean Haggerty, who was a pretty good player, got drafted the second. Never had an NHL career, but played in the minor. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. He was a great player. Second round. Yeah, he scored some big goals. But he was a New York kid um, out of Ride, New York, but lived in Mass a little bit, played for the Boston Junior Bruins. So I was friendly with him a little bit. So for me to go up there, we roomed it, we built it together, we roomed together. Um, so it made it a little, my adjustment instead of just going up being this American kid, obviously, you know, you're playing in Detroit, but you're playing with all pretty much, you know, kids from Ontario. Um, and then obviously Laidlaw was there as well. So that was a, that was a big help. And then, you know, I, when I mentioned this as well, you know, Paul Maurice was my, my head coach yeah. the first year and Pete Moore were assistant and Jimmy Rutherford was a general manager. So what an organization that to go to and kind of really prepare myself for the NHL. So it's, I lucked out that way. Yeah. I was wondering, I, I, you know, cause Barnett called me, but there was nobody Bush and I were like in tri cities. So there, there, it wasn't on the way anywhere. So you, you know, I didn't. You're you're right in the in the heart of it all, and especially playing in the OHL and and in the NHL, seeing Red Wings games. But we were in a different situation, so I often just you know Mike could fly in and we'd see him, and Laidlaw would come for Surrey or whoever, because IMG had this big pool of people. So for the fans out there listening, I'm just I'm I'm getting somewhere with this. Now I'm going to give you my version of this, Brian, and you give me your version. So it's 1994, 95, or 1995 All Star Game. So. I know that the IMG parents are going, like I'm going. My dad meets me, flies up from Newfoundland at the airport. We're on the way to the game. Barney's in with me. They stop at Gretzky's house to see the basement. They go to the rink. So, again, I'm playing on the WHL Quebec team. You're playing on the OHL team. Now, of that, that whole game, I, I think at the time not many people knew Damon and I because it was a, one of those world junior years, and wasn't it a lockout year? Right. I believe it was, yeah. It was yeah, a lockout year. Yeah, so, so all these guys that were playing in the game, a lot of them, A, would have been in the NHL, and a lot of them had just come from World Junior, so everybody knew their name. And you were rated pretty, you were rated one or two all year anyway. Me coming in, like the Newfoundlanders knew and the Western Leaguers knew, but I w- of that whole game, and, and no, you know, it was an all-star game. It wasn't a prospects game. So there's only a few guys our age even in the game. So I felt that no one knew. So on my plan... Not that I went out. I often tell people I, I didn't go out trying to fight people. I, I, I never started shit. I was I defend and I and in Montreal I guess I got a lot of fights and in Fredericton because there wasn't many people there doing it. But you know I was never thinking you know go fight unless it, if it was calculated then it had to be a certain uh, specific situation. So I went into that game thinking I'm going to get noticed. The cameras are on me and and you know I was borderline. I was rated like maybe late or early second round uh, late first. So. I said, fuck it. I went after Jovanovski because he'd gone here before. And I didn't, when I say go after him, I didn't hurt him or anything. I just went and like tapped him on the shin pads and said, let's go. I figured everybody in Canada is going to know if I fight the fucking first overall guy. Scouts are going to love it. So he says no. Now, later in the game, 
I put the clip up. I don't know if they show it. You hit me on my, knocked me on my fucking ass. And it was one of these all-star games. I tell people, it's not like it is now. It, it, there was hitting. This was a real game. People were headhunting, to be honest. Um, so I came up, dropped my gloves. We get in a fight. Meanwhile, my dad is sitting with your dad and Mike Barnett and Laidlaw and our agents watching the game in Kitchener. So I could, and I kind of knew this. Now, at the end of the fight, I remember looking at you coming off and like I winked and I said, good fight and everything. And I remember after the game shaking your hand. But at the end of that fight, and you fucking threw me down and I'd gotten in a lot of fights. I know you're tough, but like I, I had 25 as a 16 year old. Uh, you know, so I knew what I was doing and you fucking put me down, which was at least, at least I threw a few, but then I yank your fucking hair at the end. And I can't, I couldn't even believe looking at that, that I did it. I, and you know what? It was so acceptable at the time that you never said shit. You didn't even think it was weird, but anyway, that's my side of the story. What, what's your side? Like, did you go into that game thinking the same or you're just like, I'm going to play hard? No, I just play hard. And, and it's honestly, you're right on. So it's, it's, it's and I love and I watch it all the time because I love, and I love, if you watch the video towards the end, you can see Paul Maurice on the back. Yeah. <laughs> he's my coach in junior. So he's like laughing. He's chuckling. Cause I, you know, I did, I fought a little bit. Um, but, you know, and this is probably why I tackled you towards the end. Cause I knew you were starting to kind of pump me a little bit at the end. And that, that was my move. Once I, once I started getting beat a little bit, I would just grab a guy by the pants. Cause I've always been pretty strong. So I've at least been able to take some guys down. Yeah, but uh, yeah, see, I remember you. I think you tried to hit. Me, I think you tried to hit me in the corner or something, and I did kind of stand you up or something. Yeah. I knew you were kind of pissed off, and then I think we went in front. We did because I, I watched the video. It was in the corner, and then you kind of skated to me in front of that. You said, "Let's go." And I said, "Fuck it." I said, "Let's go." <laughs> and then uh, it's funny because I remember Kevin Weeks was behind me, and, and Kevin and uh, Kevin Weeks was actually. If you watch the film, I threw a couple uppercuts, and Weeks he was kind of coaching me. I don't know if you remember hearing him. He's like uppercut, I uppercut. Do. He was kind of coaching me, uh, standing behind, which was pretty funny. And then I just remember Paul Maurice kind of laughing on the bench and, and everyone, when I got back to the bench was just kind of dying. They're like, that was great. You know, a lot of guys and still people talking about it. They're like, you fought in an, NH, uh, an all-star game. And I'm like, yeah, that's just how it was. We both played hard. We're both with the same agency. And, and obviously, you know, we, we kind of kept in touch. It's, it's been a while since I talked to you, but it's, it's we, we, you know, we're friends and it's, it's great to kind of catch up again for sure. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, that was a wild time. And if you look, so a lot, and a lot of people here have said, well, there was, there was one a couple years later, but this is the thing. I don't know if you're aware of this. I don't know if you are. But that was the CHL All-Star game, and the way they, you know, remember the way they did it, whoever hosted it had a full team, so the yep. OHL was there, and then we, the WHL would com combine with the Q. But that only gave you 10 players from our league and 10 from the Q, and, and 20 from yours, roughly. So... The reason the prospects game came in is because you, me, Lankow, Redden, McCauley was in that game. Don and again, didn't even make the game, right? So when, when we did well, that's what happened. So I was talking about that. So when we did well, the very next year, they came up with the Cherry Ore Prospects game because a lot of people were saying in the hockey world, and I've heard this from uh, you know sportscasters to scouts, they were going, you know, Jesus, we should probably be showcasing the prospects. If these guys are 17 years old and the game goes up to 20-year-olds, you know what I mean? The, the odds are there's not going to be a lot of prospects in the game, but we're missing out on a lot of people who will play in the NHL. So they turned it into a prospects game. Now, in the prospects game, I think Biz Nasty, I think he was the one that did it. There was a fight a couple of years later. But as far as all-star games, it's the only fight that I know of. Yeah. And, yeah, the boys got such a kick out of that. I remember at the time. And I remember looking at you. I mean, it was hard not to smirk. I mean, even though I kind of came after you, but you, you knew what was going on. I wasn't being dirty. And I remember weeks he saying that, in the, and I was fucking howling, to be honest. I thought it was great. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's in my memory. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's, 
I agree. It's still one of my better moments playing playing the game of hockey is, is, is having a fight in the All-Star game. And, and honestly, it was a good tilt, too, which was great about it. So it was, it's fun. No, it was awesome. Uh, it's fun. It's, it's, uh, I was going to say, let's let's skip ahead. Let's skip ahead now. So the end of the, a few months later, yeah. a few months later, you go in the in our big day, <clears throat> um, in the draft. So you go first overall. But a lot of people don't fucking remember it was to the Ottawa Senators, and Wade Redden went second uh, to the New York Islanders. Now, obviously, those roles flipped, and I am a bit aloof as to. And I listened to your Chicklets interview. I, I, this part, I was driving, and I was. Uh, I, I wasn't paying much attention, to be honest. So I want to know what happened there. And, like, it happened so close to the draft. It's not like it happened three years later. So what happened? Were they in cahoots at the beginning? Did you go there right away and say, you know, I want out? Or- no, you know, I went to camp, and, I, and to be honest with you, and, and this is where I kind of got a bad rap for it, and, and being American, I think they they thought, you know, the Ottawa fans didn't think I wanted to play in Canada, which was complete bullshit because my favorite – my favorite was playing, obviously playing the OHL and then playing in Toronto. But uh, they basically, I went to camp. I was, you know, obviously an ego and, and I could, thought I could play as an 18 year old in the NHL. And I kind of, that was a goal of mine was to do that. So I go to Ottawa's camp, have a start to have a good camp about midway through. We're talking about, and I, and I was the first year, obviously we all were the first year of the rookie salary cap. So it was pretty easy to get a deal done. And they would just, they were just, you know, screwing around, screwing around. I'm like, guys, this is pretty easy. We got the bonuses done. Let's get everything done. And Bruce Garriak at the time did an interview, I think, with with one of the owners or it might have been off the record or whatever, and let us know that the GM, and I guess they just did not want me to play as an 18-year-old and did not want to sign me to because at that time the organization was struggling with, some, I guess, some financial issues and did not want to pay me the 425 signing bonus. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. Before we go any further, I want everybody to know out there, see, a couple of years before us, Alexander Digg signed, and people started talking about it was too much money for entry. So I, I don't remember what it was, Brian, but we could only have a combined contract of $2.5 million, right? Am I wrong? Correct, yeah. It was 850 eight, eight a year guaranteed contracts, and then we were allowed signing um, – sorry, not signing bonus. We were allowed performance bonuses. Yeah. So if, you know, if like I won the Calder that year, I had a $600,000 bonus. Okay. Uh, then I had a lot of points bonuses, things like that. I, there was no lifetime bonuses. I think it was just points. Yeah. And yeah. if you could, if you could win, if you could win, you know, any anything else like that, all rookie team, um, things like that. So that's where um, basically. So yeah, my my uh, question to, to go further. So what what would they have a problem with? I, that would be an easy layup of a contract, wouldn't it? I mean, mine didn't even take that long. How did yours take? Like, you can only make so much. Completely. That's why. That's why we were kind of upset about this. And then, to be honest with you, when I got there, they kind of sorry about my truck. That's all right. Off, but I will edit that out. Alexander D- Alexander Dague, um kind of picked me up, and I, was, I spent a couple of days before camp started. And and you know, I, I don't know if you'd know Daigle at all. But I just did not like him. I was like, this kid, I cannot. And in the whole locker room, just didn't seem great. And for a young player coming in as an 18 year old. I was just, I don't want to say because I was playing junior, not homesick, whatever. I just did not have a good feeling about that team. That happened. So it wasn't like we were picking a team, and then they, they pulled that contract bullshit, and then Laidlaw said that he goes, I agree with that. I think he said, let's let's not ask for a trade publicly, but let's talk to them, and, and let's see if there's, um, you know, if, if there's any interest in moving you. And, we, we, and then we got rumors that Milbury kind of had a little tiff, some kind of fight with Red in that camp. Um, and we kind of, we already knew I had a relationship with Milbury, um, so like, let's just see if we can push something, um, you know, not just with the Islanders, but let's just kind of secretly, uh, you know, talk about maybe having them trade Randy Sexton to make this story a little shorter, Randy Sexton and all them, they got fired. They had, uh, they hired, Go- was it was a Pierre Gauthier, I believe they hired. Yeah. 
And then after the World Junior Championships that, that year in Boston, uh, talks got seriously, and then Milbury pulled the deal uh, and traded me to uh, – there was a three-team three deal, the Florida Panthers – uh, the Islanders in Ottawa, and there's you know five or six, seven players that kind of kind of swap, but mostly swapped. It was just myself and Red, and and I think like Damian Rhodes and uh, a couple other goalies kind of went to different spots as well. So that's kind of how that worked, and it wasn't it had nothing to do with me not playing, wanting to play in Canada or playing you know for Ottawa. It was just at that time that organization was a mess. Uh, interesting. I never knew that story. I guess it was right there, but I never knew it. And and to be honest, I only met Dig. I met him twice, and I got I, I got a feeling. Um, I, I couldn't ever generalize, and I didn't ever want to say anything, but I, I, I got a feeling. It, it was a pompous. Uh, he, he seemed a little bit stuck up, would be light. light. Yeah, I, I, and he seemed disinterested. And I, I don't know, like if he's one of the leaders and a few more, um, maybe I can see what you mean, because I used to feel very intimidated at first going up, but guys like Mark Recchi and Shane Corson were there, and, you know, come on, let's have a beer, and right away immerse you into the culture, and... If that wasn't there, and you went first overall, and the other, and the other, right? you went first overall. Yeah, and the other guys, I mean, still friends. Yashin was there, so still friendly with him. That wasn't a big deal. But then Radic Bonk, you know, I was friendly with him. I just didn't get it. The locker room just didn't see. I wasn't used to, I guess, coming into a so locker yeah. room like that. And it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And then, you know, I got traded to the Islanders. And then obviously played a 19-year-old. But walking into that locker room with guys like Bertuzzi, Brian McCabe, uh, Scott Lachance, oh, beauty. older guys, with Mick Bacoda, Richie Pilon, Derek King. I mean, right away we were welcomed where guys would drop our bags, we'd go have some beers, and you, you kind of felt part of a team. Um, Eric Fischel, we had oh, a lot beauty. of Brett Lindros there. That's when you start, you know, you're struggling with, with the concussions at the time, but he was still there. So we just had, when I went to the Islanders at a, at a 19 year old, that, that's where I felt like, and we had a lot of young guys. So the pressure was kind of spread out a lot and it, it kind of made my career, it kind of made me adapt to the NHL a lot easier. Well, you're a good guy, first of all, and I'm glad that you say, uh, Yashin is a good fella because I, I had pegged to not to be, but I don't know anybody that played with him really. I've never talked about it. He just seemed like a bit, I don't know what the word is, non leaderish. But he, good to hear then. If you got along with him, then point proven. Um, so you're down. And by the way, Mick Fakoda, let's give a shout out to Mick Fakoda. I know he listens to this uh, once in a while. And Mick was my uh, teammate in Montreal and Utah. And he was that kind of glue. He was so wild. Like, we could have a few beers and you'd see his eyes start going squirrely. But he, he brought the team together in the most <laughs> odd kind of way. But he brought everybody together. And I only remember really smiling and laughing around him. Uh, he had a crazy presence, though, and he was so goddamn tough. Um, but I can see how... He, he, he was. <laughs> I, when, when, those eyes, when those eyes started going squirrel, that's what we joke about. We call him the him is what we'd say. But <laughs> Nick was one of the best guys that... Uh, as far as tough guys, I really tough. One of the best tough guys as far as a teammate and a guy in the locker room would always take the younger guys under his belt, um, would stick up for you on the ice. Uh, Mick is still a good friend today. I see him at some uh, Islanders alumni stuff, and I always enjoy seeing Mick at all. He's he's the best for sure. That's awesome. Now, um, so shortly after, you're in New York a couple years. Now you get a chance to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, I remember at the time, I mean, I, I followed you and um, – quite a bit. I remember you embracing that. So first of all, was it everything you thought it would be? And then I guess, uh, get on to your, uh, move on to, you know, what, what heated, heated your progress, uh, half, uh, you know, during your time there being your eye. 
It, I mean, it was it was kind of. I was shocked, uh, to be honest, to get traded. I, I didn't think, I, you know, not to say that I guess I was a bit of a spoonie not playing in the Myers and stuff and then being first overall with the Islanders. I really never thought – I heard the rumors. I didn't think, to be honest, I didn't think Milbury would trade me. He did trade me, and then for me it was like winning the lottery kind of for hockey. I mean, I'm walking to Toronto. We're closing we're – close, I get to play the last probably 10 games at Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, we open up Air Canada Center. I got guys in the locker room like Stevie Thomas, Matt Sundin, Ty Domi, uh, Curtis Joseph, Glenn Healy, um, a, f- a few things. Um, the, the team in the locker room had the Russian Mafia, a lot of guys that were, were pretty impressive um, to be a part of. And we had a good team. And we, were, and we were big pack went behind a bench. Um, so it was, running, it was a running gun style. Um, it was just, it, it, was a, it was a great place for me to end up, especially the way I played. Um, so, you know, I couldn't have thanked Milbury enough for trading me Toronto. And there was no animosity then, was there, between you and Milbury? None at all. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, still, I mean, we, me and... Yeah, it was it was good. I just find it odd, Brian, because like you, you getting the Calder, and by the way, that must have that must have blown your socks off, did it? Getting the Calder. I mean, I know you were, I know you had a good year, and you might have expected it, but I mean, this is the Calder. Like one year after you're playing junior, you're the rookie of the year in the NHL. I mean, that must have been overwhelming too. I kind of I kind of glanced over that. It was, and, and to be honest with you, and, and I and I say this because I got made fun for, for a lot because my rookie the year speech was so freaking awful and terrible. I thought Aginla was going to win for sure. Um, so I didn't prepare anything. I wasn't, you know, again, I had a great year. Obviously, as a defenseman, I guess it's they, they looked at it as maybe a little tougher to come into the league. But I really thought Aginla was going to win it. Who was so the other? I didn't yeah, prepare myself I forgot. At, at all. Iggy was um, up for it. Who was the other guy? Jim, Jim Campbell out of St. Louis. Yeah, but who was like 26. Yeah, he had a bunch of goals. Um, so I, I really thought they were going to give it to, you know, Iggy or whoever they were going to give it to. So I didn't prepare at all. So I went up for my speech. I completely bombed on the speech. I kind of like froze with all the lights. It was kind of pretty funny. Um, but, yeah, I still get made fun of fun of it for it uh, by my family. But, uh, yeah, I didn't expect it all. So, you know, and, and we weren't a great team. I mean, we didn't make the playoffs or anything like that. So with the Islanders, but we, we did have fun and we had a lot of we had a good a lot of good young players. And nobody just started trading everybody. I mean, he was trading guys like McCabe, Bertuzzi. He traded Eric Brewer. He traded Chara. I traded myself. I mean, our sixth defenseman was myself, McCabe, Scott Lachance, Kenny Johnson, Eric Brewer. I mean, we had six D that were probably for a little while, for five or six years, probably top three. You know, top yeah. three on any team in the NHL for a little bit. Um, so you know, it was just it was just you know, I think for for Milbury it was kind of a tough tough uh i don't know what was going through his brain but mike is still i respect mike he's pretty funny on nbc and, and uh, we get along pretty good okay well that's great to hear and uh you know more should be i don't want to dwell too much on this we're going to move on but i often say to people you know a lot of these people yeah. that were hard-ass coaches and everything and might i mean I, I had a funny draft story with milbury but i don't hate the guy and i'm like you know a lot of things back then were a lot different and you know you can still have respect and it's good to hear a you know, because he, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but he's not a fucking criminal. And, you know, we got to look at this with tongue-in-cheek sometimes. I'm glad that you had a good experience. What was the room like in T.O.? Name some guys that you hung out with there in the late 90s in Toronto Maple Leafs. I can't fucking imagine what that must have been like. Well, we and I was in my early 20s, mm. so it was a lot. I mean, for your eyes only, um, brass rail. Oh, yeah. uh, what else was going on? <laughs> the brass rail. London, I don't worry about it. Big easy. Uh, I was a single guy. Uh, we had a lot of fun. But it was myself, Matt Sundin, Todd Warner, uh, Mike Johnson. Um, then we had like Sergey Bears and uh, Danny Markoff, who was an absolute Danny fucking Markoff. I know Mark- him well. Wow, having a smoke Mark- outside the bus. Uh, he, 
Uh, absolutely, they all did. There's about eight guys on that. Eight <laughs> to ten guys that would, would smoke on that. Stevie Thomas, I love Stumpy. He's one of my best friends right. ever. Uh, well, that's great. Game. He comes over here every uh, year with the alumni. You should come over. Keep going. Oh yeah, he he he's still smoking the butt. He uh he he was my roommate on the road, so I couldn't say anything. He'd lay in bed and have a couple of darts before uh, <laughs> before he was asleep. I mean, I'd have the sheets over my nose, won't stop. Really, he's like, shut up, rookie. <laughs> I love it. But still, I mean, uh, that was a good good group, a great group of guys. And again, we were, we were a good team, and we had Cujo and Nets. Um, unfortunately, you know, some of the guys that passed away in the, in the, in the um in the flight in Russia, like Korolev, and some of the guys in Karpatsov, some of those guys were. Or, you know, so that was tough to, to, to hear. But uh, we just we had a really good locker room. Uh, Chris King was on that team. Uh, so like Kinger, Ty Domi, Glenn Healy, they would battle every single day. So it was, it was a fun it was a fun environment. Obviously, Pat Quinn was behind everything, kind of just old school hockey. Let us play. Let us have the beers in the locker room after uh, the red wine, uh, kind of in the steam room, wherever we kind of you know, we, we enjoyed it. That's great. Um, that was that was a great time. It was yeah, it was a lot of fun for me that that time in the NHL. That's fantastic to hear and. Um... You know, it's all about the relationships uh, to me that, that you make along the way. Um, and, I, and I assumed, I assumed it would be a good, good time playing in Toronto, of course, especially in the late 90s when rules were there. But, uh, you know, you had good leaders. And, and I think the, the, the baton was given to the captain rather than social media. And, you know, do what you want with it. If you had a good leader, you had a good time. Um, yeah, and Matt's, and Matt's, I mean, Matt's is, you know, a quiet leader, too. Um, great guy on and off the ice, but he was a quiet leader, but we, he led by example. Um, and to be honest with Toronto fans, I mean, obviously, you know, most people know my eye injury happened in Toronto, happened in Ottawa, but happened when I played for the Leafs and that organization and those fans, the support that they gave me after, you know, basically thinking my NHL career was over, not losing my right eye, but losing the right division in my right eye. And, and I can't thank, still thank them enough and thank, thank all the fans for the support. So yeah, tell, tell us about that. Um, you know, I, I remember it vividly because I was involved in playing at the time, but you know, a lot of people don't 20 years have passed almost. So tell us. Unfortunately, yeah, just, it was a freak accident and uh, Marion Hosa, uh, it was a game in Ottawa, which kind of, it's kind of weird that it happened in Ottawa because, you know, every time I touched the puck there in Ottawa after, after they traded me after first of all, I'd get booed. Oh, um, but you know, it was, a, it was, it was, uh, I think we were, we were really killing a penalty, I believe. Um, and the puck was kind of, I was covering Hosa in front of the net in a slot, kind of high slot. And, and Matt's picked off, Sundin picked off the pass that was kind of headed towards Hosa and, and out of frustration, Hosa just kind of swung his, he was kind of, I think it was going to one time it anyway, and, and ended up just swinging his stick anyway, kind of just kind of out of frustration. And I was jumping up in the play to kind of be in the offensive defenseman and kind of um, sometimes taking a little too many chances in the defensive zone. I was jumping up and didn't expect the stick. So when I turned around, um, I wasn't unable, I was unable to really kind of know, I guess I didn't know what was coming. So I wasn't able to shut my eye in time. Um, so basically it was kind of a pressure cut, hit me pretty hard. So it ruptured my orbital, oh, cracked my orbital and my cheekbone, but my eyeball just kind of ruptured. Um, so it wasn't, you know, obviously right away. Um, if you look at it on the clips and stuff, you kind of see my feet kind of wailing around a little yeah. bit. It wasn't that it was hurt. I just knew I was kind of screaming to Cujo right away that I'm like, Cujo, I'm in trouble. I can't see. I, I can't see. And he's like, there's a lot of blood. He's kind of talking to me just, you know, there's a lot of blood kind of try to you know relax a little bit i'm like i can't see i'm in trouble and then i just kept thinking to myself i said fuck i think i you know i think i'm either going to lose my right eye here or my, or my that's the first thought is, is you know first thought was holy shit you know i'm gonna lose my eye second thought was my nhl career is over um and and you know tell the story a little bit a few times but get back to the locker room and the guys that are either healthy scratches or, or um you know hurt we're, we're back in the dressing room and the doctors come down and stuff and and um 
I still remember that, you know, the doctors came in and sprayed the eyewash. It was a lot of blood. It ruptured a couple of arteries too. So it was kind of just kind of squirting blood a little bit, a lot of blood. The doctor said, oh, it's just a lot of blood, a lot of blood. And when they sprayed the eyewash into the eye, I could see the doctor's faces. I could see the guys that weren't playing faces. And I knew I was in trouble. Uh, they're like, you know, basically, wow. we got to get them to the hospital right away. What a feeling. Yeah, and then they get me to the first hospital, which is even kind of, yeah, the, this this is the worst feeling. When we get to the hospital, the first hospital we go to in Ottawa, um, I'm sitting there, and I'm still, I wore a girdle at the time, and, and I'm sitting there, and that's all I have on, nothing else. And I'm sitting there in the chair, and the nurses are all around me, and the doctors come in again, and they spray the eyewash in, my, in their eye, and the two doctors are like, we can't do this here. And I'm like, what? Like, uh, what do you mean you can't do this here? It's a hospital. And that's when I kind of got up, and, and I remember kind of, Going to do it over a trash can, I started throwing up, and I remember my nurse kind of hit me in the hit me in the ass with a needle to try to calm me down and try to I think the pain and all that kind of stuff. And then I woke up in the morning and, and I learned that I was in surgery for about eight hours um, to, to kind of save my eye, repair my eye, and and, and uh, then obviously the rehab, but not even the rehab. I ended up having probably in about a fourteen month period. I had about six or seven surgeries trying to repair that eye and, and, and really kind of. Uh, just try to get as much vision back, try to save the eye, get as much vision back as I am. The doctors knew I wanted to play hockey um, and, and really just kind of um, spent the whole year in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and going back and forth from New York having uh, eye surgeries. Wow, that's that's incredible. Um, so at, at some point during that time, the realization hits home. But here's the amazing part of this story. I think this is one of the most resilient moves of all time, and, and you know whatever you want to say, character. Not to toot your fucking horn here, but you're, you're selling a book, and, and this is character times 10. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you got paid out money, $6.5 I believe, out of insurance. 6.3, Okay, 6.3 insurance. Um, you know, basically because you can't play hockey anymore, and, and, you know, you got one eye, so if anybody has a leg to stand on, it's you. Now... Within a year, you decide to give that money back and go earn it in the NHL because you wanted to be a hockey player, and that was first and foremost. Am I wrong? Correct. I was 20, so 23 years old. Um, you know, it was a long road back, obviously, but as I started to kind of skate and get back in shape, I thought there was a chance I could play at that level. But when, I, where I were you wanted... doing this? Where were you skating? There's a point that you got one eye, or you got two eyes, but there's a point that you can't see as well out of one eye. And I mean, it's to this day, isn't it? You you can't see as well out of one eye. Yeah, I, I can't. As soon as uh, all I see is basically light and some, you know, basically some figures and stuff. But when my my left my good eye, my left eye is open, uh, my brain just shuts my right down, and so it just basically goes black and just shuts it off. So I wow. played. I came back. I think it was six or seven years. I played with one eye. But I I, lit, I was staying at my parents' house in Soccer, Rhode Island. I was training with a trainer here, and I was skating at that time. I started skating with the Providence College Friars, the NCAA Division One team. I was skating with them for a little bit, and then the NCAA kind of found out about it, which was ridiculous, and, and said I couldn't skate with them because it was an unfair advantage for, which is ridiculous. Oh That's NCAA for it. Anyway, so, so then I did. I skated. I started skating. I started feeling better, but at this time too, I, I mean, I, I literally did nothing for about twelve months, and, and without people with uh, some eye surgeries, you know, especially retina issues, is all you had. All you can after the surgery is you need to lay face down. So you're almost laying to describe it to some some people that are listening. You're basically laying in a massage chair where you head down because 20 hours a day because you have to let they put the silicone uh, 
ointment in your eye to so basically it rises and lays against the back of your eye to try to heal that retina so it heals properly without scar tissue. Well, why the sur- we kept having the surgery is because the scar tissue would go and rip the retina off, and that's why I kept having to repeat. Dr. Stanley Chang was an amazing doctor out of New York kept doing the surgery so and it's only a three-hour drive so that's why i stayed with my parents oh, trained and then um to make the again story shorter with not enough time here but we, we um that summertime uh the u.s hockey uh the late herb brooks was running a running a clinic um and, and um basically running a clinic and he we asked my agent tom Layla at the time um asked him if i could go and play and guys like chelios leach madonna you know, Brett Hall, those guys were all skating. So I said, if I can go out and practice with these guys for a week, do some scrimmages, play, call up some general managers, if I can play at this level, you know, especially with these, you know, like the best American players in the league right now, that I think will, will open some eyes. And thank God there were some few teams that went out, and Don Maloney, uh, at the time I think the assistant GM of the Rangers came out and saw that I could play. And, and you know, I still thank the Rangers organization and Glenn Sather and, and, and Don Maloney. They gave me a chance. And, and then uh, the year after, I went, went and played, I played all 82 games with the New York Rangers, and, and the comeback was kind of started. I bet you that was fucking satisfying to play all 82 games. But, like... It, it was. And, and, the, and, the, and they stuck with me, which they, I was probably, you know, six or seven defensemen, and they kept me in for every game and, and gave me an opportunity. And, and guys on that team were, were, I mean, it was Messier, Leach, Pavel Bure, Lindros, I mean, Malakoff, some really good players. We didn't even make the playoffs. So Theo Fleury was there. Um, so there's a lot of good players there. And it, it kind of obviously made my comeback and, and kind of eyes off me. And that's why, in, in hindsight, a, a lot of people say, why did you go back to Toronto and play? I just think I needed a new start and really didn't want a lot of eyes on me because I, I knew I was not going to be the same player. Um, so I really kind of wanted just to kind of ease back into it. So what, I mean, I'm just, knowing that era, I play left wing. And, you know, I always found getting that puck from the pass behind the net and then starting out, if, if a D wants to stop and come and line you up, he can. I always found it weary coming through that neutral zone. Again, I've, I, I was in hundreds of fights. I, I got four post-concussions and they're all from hits going through the middle. I can't imagine having one fucking eye and doing it. What I mean, what was the biggest adjustment? Is it just the obvious that I think? I mean, even even just doing a drill. Now I know you can see. I know, but I you can't changed. see out of both. You know, as well as one, no matter what you say. So how did you fucking do it? Yeah, and I always played the right side, so I had to change that. I had to put, I had to move to the left side of okay. the left shot. I had to move to the left side to, so everything kind of stayed in front of me. The right side, if I would take a puck. You know, on basically on the offhand, I'm kind of turned around to the right eye. I can't see anything off the <laughs> ice. This is amazing. So I changed it, played the left side. Um, the offensive, the offensive part of the game was pretty similar and the same as far as it, and it kind of shows in my numbers as I started getting used to it. But it was more just an offensive part of the game, really kind of keeping your head on a swivel, turning around all the time. And that's where I struggled a little bit. Guys dumping pucks in on you, not doing a purpose as part of the game. Mostly, I could. I always had great vision anyway, so that kind of that kind of you know I could see plays develop, but not to my own home. But that was kind of one of yeah, my yeah, yeah, totally. And then kind of, and then, you know, guys, I could always feel one guy. It's when like two guys would jump on a four check and send me. That's when I kind of would get popped a little bit. But again, hockey players, are, you know, the respect in the game too. A lot of the old timers and a lot of the old guys that knew my injury and stuff. I mean, they'd still hit me and bury me, but some guys would kind of give me a little heads up if they knew I didn't see them coming, but they'd give that little heads up. So I at least kind of brace myself a little bit. They'd still run me and hit me hard, but I'd still get, uh, which, which says a lot about the hockey players. You kind of had that respect and I get a little, Hey, 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 or whatever coming in and, and guys would still, you know, they still light you up, but they kind of give me a little bit of a heads up. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is amazing. I can, I can see that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing that you could adapt. I mean, and you say the first year with the Rangers, you come back, 
you know, you say, well, it was kind of good to, to get back on, on skates and, you know, get me in the rhythm. I mean, you had 23 points. I mean, that's that's still pretty good. And the next season with Boston, 38 points. You nearly had a point every say 10 goals. So clearly this, as you got confidence, and I mean, the next year in Chicago, 304, 47 points in 58 games. Now you're talking back, I mean, you're talking Norris Trophy numbers, right? You, re- you really are. So what, I, I mean... Was it a all of a sudden that confidence came? I guess power play time. Um, did it? Did it off? It, there must have been a point where it became second nature, and you're not thinking about it anymore. Or was that immediately? It, it was. It was the first year. I obviously struggled, and, and uh, again, talk about it in the book a little bit with, with Leach. I kind of, you know, I kind of. He'd be like, "What are you?" He's like, "You should be happy just back playing." He's like, "Stop complaining," you know, because I, I knew I wasn't the, the right player, the, the player I was once before, um, and it was frustrating. Um, and obviously with my vision and then I, you know, I put the visor on and I hated the visor and obviously I had to wear the visor now with one eye, uh, but it fogged up and the sweat, yeah, I just, I, I, I hate it. I bitch about that all. So, you know, I hated it. I bitch on the bench about it all the time. And, and um, you know, just, and, and, but then as, as the, with Boston, it just seemed the more I played, the more the natural, you know, I was lucky enough to be blessed with, with, with the talent I had, but just seeing the more I played, it started to come back. And that, and then you know, you get into it. Then obviously, which, then the lockout happened. So I missed the whole year of the lockout. When we didn't, want, we really didn't want to go play over in, in Europe to kind of. I should have kind of kept playing, but insurance reasons and stuff like that. I just didn't. I didn't want to take a chance of getting hurt. So I didn't. I missed all of 2004 with the lockout. Then we signed. Uh, you know, had a great year with Chicago. Sign a good deal. Don't sign a deal. Um, sign a agree to a deal with the GM Pulford at the time with three year with a nice number on it uh, in Chicago. They fire Pulford during the lockout. Dale Town comes in, nixes the deal, which I still haven't talked to Town about, but I'm still pissed off about. I don't understand though. I'm Chicago. looking at the numbers. I don't understand why it wasn't. For- yeah, I, I just want. I don't know if you want to bring his own guys in or whatever. Um, and then uh, Doug, Doug McLean signed, which I've always got along with him. He signed me in Columbus. Um, you know, Nash was there. Barborny, Zierd off was a good young player at the time. I mean, uh, I went in there and. and um, you know, go on to which I which I liked a lot was a head coach. Went in there and, and started to put up some really good numbers. Um, I think I got hurt with like forty five games in. I think I had fourteen goals and, and maybe even close to forty points. I was close to almost a point a game and then yeah. I blow my back out and I have two basically two back surgeries. Oh so it was kinda like the, the black cloud didn't didn't want to leave me and then that that's what ruined my ended my career. The two back surgeries kind of every day after that going to the rink and getting up and even putting my socks and shoes on was 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 tough to, to, to go and then the practice and the games I just it ended my career. How is it now? You're back. It's fine. I had the two surgeries, and it's you know I can play golf and, and things like that. It's it's and it's still a struggle. Forty about forty two, be forty three this year, but um, it's still a struggle. But the surgeries helped a lot. But it, it just it slowed my whole game down. I just could not really move well after that and everything. My else. God, I mean, I guess not. I guess not. You're seeing out of one yeah. eye, and you got a bad back, and you're still getting twenty two points in fifty four yeah. games. I mean, so was it your choice then, or the or after oh seven oh eight? Because I, I still don't get that either. Oh seven oh eight, you're with the Islanders, 54 games, five goals, 17 assists, 22 points. Those are great numbers. And I, you're, I love how you're still mixing it up, too. <laughs> you still had, you, you always had 60, or 60, 64, 48, 93 penalty minutes. So was it your choice or could you re- legitimately not, you know, get a job in the NHL? My, it doesn't make much sense to me after those numbers. It, it, I was I was not forced out, but uh, that year I went over to, to play in Russia um, I actually went to Philly's uh, Philly's camp with the Philadelphia, yeah, the Flyers camp. Camp, but I, uh, again, fifty-four games, twenty-two points. Sorry to cut you off. Go. Yeah, 
yeah, so I, I went to I went to uh, Flyers camp with with a bunch of beauties um, and made that. I thought I made that team for sure. And a lot of guys said I thought I was easily top four um, that could have played on the power play with team in at the time. Lupo was there, Upshaw, um, Hartnell, uh, Mike Richards, Carter. We had a pretty good team, and I thought I, honestly I really thought I made that team. And Homer called me up uh, at the end of camp and was like, you know. We'll, we're unfortunately by and it, which I respect Homer. He's one of the most honest guys in hockey and they wanted to go with speed. They wanted to go with a younger defenseman at the time with speed. It was Lucas Spiza who was a good player. Um, and I knew that, um, and, but I just really thought I made that team. And, and I, I basically, I knew then my NHL career was pretty much over when home was kind of pissed off about it, a little bit, a little angry. And then I decided to, uh, to sign over in Russia and go play a year over with, uh, over in Russia with Chris Simon and the BT's, uh, BT's checkoff uh, team there. And just uh, about 60 miles, about 60 kilometers south of Moscow. Oh, is it? And uh, that was a great time. I mean, to be honest with you, it was great. It was, it was like playing in the wild, wild west. Um, we talked about before, and I talked about on Chicklets. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. The owner, the owner loved us, um, treated us really well on and off the ice. Uh, we had some great dinners and some, some, some great lady friends. Uh, so, and I was single too, so at the time, so I had a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and then, uh, pretty much, but the only, the only thing I was, and I was never scared to fly or travel over here. I was, I was, um, I had some anxiety and, and scared of flying over there in Russia with the old planes and flying nine hours for, for one game. Oh. Um, so that's kind of why I kind of my, kind of ended my career. I guess so. So yeah, I mean, and the whole, I hear everything, Russia, you hear the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, but it sounds to me after just hearing you talk a little bit about it, um, that it was a, you know, you, you had a pretty good time and was, you know, a, a, did Chris Simon get you there or did they phone you when you went over there? Was it everything you expected? The meals? I know that, I know that the, the women sound great. Um, how were the women's or the, sorry, how were the meals, the, the, the boozing, the boys, was it the same? Did people go out to dinner the night before or was it like clicky and that English guys here and Moscow or Russians here? It was a little clickier, that's for sure. I mean, because some of the guys just kind of, you know, the Russian guys had their families and stuff, but the Russian guys I played with on that team were great. Uh, Chris didn't drink, uh, cheap or sober, so um, it made me, yeah. honestly, I, yeah, I didn't drink. I didn't, at that time, he was. I didn't drink that much, to be honest with you. Uh, maybe hit a little herb here and there, just kind of when we were bored. But other than that, we just kind of, uh, really just kind of hung out, um, you know, went to some nice dinners, and, you know, we're traveling there, you get to play some great. Riga, Latvia is probably... Probably still today one of the best cities I've ever been to in my life. Um, obviously, Kiev, Ukraine. So you get to travel, you get to see some pretty good cities. And, and I was kind of a little bit of a, a history buff myself, a little bit. So I kind of enjoyed some of that stuff and seeing some of those cities. Um, but it, and I went over, only went over there for half a year too, so that made it a lot easier. And then I had big, big chief to, to kind of live with that kind of helped pass the time. We had a couple other good North Americans on that team. So and we had a good owner. I mean, he was he was nuts, but we had a good owner and. And, uh, you know, he had this Russian compound I, t I talk about. It was probably, you know, 50 acres. He had these these weird breed of big-ass dogs that he was breeding that were pretty cool. He had, he, had a, he had a wild wolf on his property caged up in about, like, this acre cage. He had all these exotic furs, all these expensive wine. He had a um, – he actually had, like, a Russian sauna on the property with a big uh, – like one of the, the big saunas, but also a big mahogany deck with uh, – that walked out to the, the, the ice with a big hole chopped in it. So you can, you know, in a sauna, you actually go out and jump in the, in the freezing ass before you blow these big fur, fur bear, uh, like almost, uh, coats that guys would go on and kind of smoke cigarettes and, and talk. The Russians would go out and say, you know, kind of one-on-one -on -one and kind of have their, whatever they're talking about, the Russian meetings. Um, he had these big fireplaces that were like wood stoves. 
with marble top with like exotic bowl, uh, polar bear rugs on top that guys could take like a two hour snooze or a power nap on. Wow. It was pretty, it was pretty, it was wild. I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. And I, I actually enjoyed it. I had, I had a good time over there. That's fantastic. Uh, you hear everything, but like I said, each situation is different and, uh, you know, the league in the, Oh, by the way, did you get all your money? I don't need to know how much, but did you get all your money? I also hear that people coming back. And I being, didn't, <clears throat> I got about 80% of it. So I was not, Paul Theophanis is by far, I think the best agent. If you're going to go and play in Russia and he's a great agent over here as well. And he's a good friend. Um, he got basically got a, about 80% of it. And I, I, if we would have made the playoffs, I, I I'm hundred percent sure. I would have got all of it. The owner was just pissed off and didn't want to you know, pay me the, the rest. I think he ended up, I'll tell you, it, was, it ended up being like maybe 180, 200 grand that he owed me that he didn't pay. But you know, I went over there, I played 26 games and I made a million bucks. Yeah. So, so you're not uh, complaining. You know, yeah. And, I wasn't complaining and, and we didn't make the playoffs. So I, you know, and I understood that I, he was pissed off. And, and, uh, so, you know, went back to New York and, and, uh, and kind of pretty much retired and I uh, lived in the city for, for about four or five years and then moved back home to, to go to work. I'm working for a financial firm, uh, whale rock point partners here in, in Providence. Um, we haven't gotten into the fraud story, but, uh, well, you know, I, my financial advisor. Yeah. My financial advisor, uh, Phil Kenner, uh, screwed a bunch of NHL players, I me including, um, and, and really I just went, came back here and went to work. When to to, was this though? I knew the story to... and I heard you telling it and I heard about it through Bush long ago, but like when, when was the, I, yeah. When did you realize that he fucked you? Yeah. So I realized right before I got on a plane to Russia, <laughs> I was a contacted by the feds, went in for a meeting when I was in Russia, that that's kind of what really took a lot of my time as I started combing, going back and combing through a lot of old emails and just kind of trying to match up stories and, and Simon was a client as well. So we kind of, we just kind of talked. And then I teamed up with a cop back in, in New York who got, got screwed over too. Um, so I spent a lot of time on that. And that's why I went back to New York and kind of worked with the feds. And, and uh, he's been in jail now for, I think it's six years, five or six years. They still haven't sentenced them. Hopefully that will happen here soon. I'm, I'm hoping before the new year. Um, but that's, that's kind of what, uh, unfortunately, I, you know, I built a pretty good nest egg for myself. And then all of a sudden I realized it was, it was pretty much all gone. Um, and, and he was a friend, you know, he was, uh, he was from uh, Buffalo, New York, yeah. went to work at state street out of Boston. Uh, I think even me and Ethan Morrow was his first client. So we got a lot of guys and, and, um, you know, he's a friend. He spent two nights at my house for Christmas, two Christmases at my house. Um, wow. he just, uh, you know, something happened triggered in his brain and he ended up being a, just a, a real piece of shit and a crook. And, and, uh, you know, he got, he got good. But for me, you know, again, I was single. I didn't have a family with kids. Um, which, you know, um, he screwed a lot of families. So it was tough. And then that's kind of why I moved back home and then do what I'm doing now to try to educate some young players, really anybody. I mean, it can happen to anybody. And, and, uh, so, so how many, how many guys were, were in on that or did he fuck? I think the total ended up being about, you know, roughly, I'm going to guess 23 NHL players. And you were the one then that took the bull by the horns at the beginning. You're the, you're the one that's. Wow. Yeah, you know, a lot of guys, and I'm not going to mention any names because some guys, I think so, I was embarrassed about it too. And then, you know what? I was like, screw it. I got to get my, that's why I wrote the book Relentless. I really wanted to kind of get my story out there, um, really to help people and, and, you know, and not be embarrassed about it and, and kind of educate people on, on what happened to me um, because it can really, it really can happen to anybody. And uh, <laughs> so a lot of guys were, were ashamed, and, and still a lot of guys, there's some guys that still don't believe he did it, which is, which is amazing to me. Um, but the feds got him. Um, there was another guy uh, named Tommy Constantine. They got him as well as like a partner in crime. Um, so those guys, hopefully they'll do 15, 20 years when, 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 when it's all yeah. done. Yeah. I would fucking yeah. hope. Um, now, yeah, exactly. So 
this is and this is you know it's funny because you say you know you hated school back in the day meanwhile now you're an author and you work a, a very important job that requires education so did you is this what spurred you to get get into finance i mean now now that's your job which is ironic given what happened but is this what or did did you have a background already and you were just trusting him and you know it was just a natural fit after hockey or did all this make you educated it, it, it made it made me uh, definitely educated on it. Um, I'm in business development, so really I bring in new business, so I don't give any financial advice. I, I leave that up to the guys that went to school, and and I'm, I'm working for a, a great team. This guy Brad Dorman, who actually played hockey at Harvard, so it's a great office, it's a small office. Uh, started as a family office, and then Tyson Reed, the two partners, um, and they're the educated one. So I just set up the meetings and, and kind of bring the guys into there, and, and they're great. I mean, they've they've worked with wealthy families, and they've been around for a long time, and it's a it's a great uh, environment for me to be in. I'm still you know, I'm learning a lot about the business, but really just business development. So that, that kind of, which this is what triggered it all. And really just kind of wanted to, to get out there and help some people to, so the shit that happened to me doesn't happen to anybody else. Well, that's a great, absolutely commendable thing to do. Um, not much longer here. I just got a couple more questions. Uh, I know you're busy. Um, and it's been great by the way, but I'm wondering why the book and why now? Um, it was probably the book's been in, in works for about three years. Okay. Um, and to be honest with you, why now it's, I thought uh, Phil Kenner would have got sentenced by now. And I, I we were trying to do that with the timing. Um, as far as, you know, I met with the publishing company. I met with Kevin Hansen out of Simon and Schuster, Canada. Uh, my friend Ty Domi set it up. He released his book. I read his book, um, co-authored with Jim Lang, who has become a good friend, a great guy to work with. He made this so easy. And Ty helped me out a lot too. He told me just to start writing down stories that I could remember, um, you know, and, and, and really just kind of prepare yourself for it. And then when me and Jim started talking, we met, obviously met in person in Toronto and, and spent a lot of time on the phone and Jim just made it easy. And then Simon Schuster kind of took over and we released the book of end of October. Uh, again, it's called relentless. Um, and, and we've had some good stuff. Obviously I went on chicklets, which was a big push and those guys are great. And, and, and thank you for having me on, but it's something, again, I just want really wanted to, it's not just a hockey book. Um, it talks about my fraud. It talks about my injuries. It talks about just, you know, growing up in Winsocket and, and really kind of um, the perseverance of really just kind of pushing through. Again, I, I've had some bad luck, but again, in hindsight, I would do it again. I, I had a great career. I was lucky enough to play in the NHL. Uh, it's a dream come true. And, and, and really just kind of, I, I wanted to get my story out there. And if it can help some people that have had some eye injuries or really anything, um, it's, it's a good quick read and it's, it's a fun book. It was a fun project. I'm proud of it. Oh, well, I'm proud of you, man. Um, you know, we got so much in common and saw the world through the uh, same lens for, 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 forgive the pun, for, uh, for a long time and still do, especially now that you've joined the, uh, you know, you've, you've joined the authorship of hockey, I suppose you would say. I never thought I'd get there or <laughs> I'd be there. And here we are promoting books. But listen, Brian, are you still involved in hockey in uh, any way? I mean, I, I know you're a fan, but, uh, you know, do, are, are you work for a team or anything? That's a great question. So I, I love to get back in the, one of the NHL teams as player development. I love working with the younger kids. Um, I, myself and Boucher, uh, we just started, uh, not started, but we're kind of overseeing um, our old high school, Mount St. Charles Academy. Unfortunately, the high school program and high school in Rhode Island and Massachusetts kind of gone away to prep school and now these full season junior teams. So we started a new program at Mount St. Charles Academy. Um, it's called the Academy, um, the, the Mounties, the junior Mounties. And uh, we have a U18 program, a U16 program, a U15 and a U14. They're full season teams. Uh, we actually built a brand new dorm at the school. So we're, we're about, uh, boarding about 82 kids from all over, from Quebec to down to Carolina to 
um, Michigan, uh, all over the place. So I'm actually on the ice, uh, almost about a little busy travel now, but, uh, but once a week I actually run all Wednesdays, I go on the ice and, and run all four practices. And then I help with the, obviously the defenseman and then the power play stuff when the coaches need me and want me to come out and I enjoy it. So I'm working with, you know, the 14, 18 year old kids having a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, it's, this is the first year I've been really back in hockey. So I'm enjoying it a lot. Except going in the cold ranks is still pain in the ass once in, once in a while with the body. But other than that, I love going on the ice with the kids. Well, I bet you do. And I mean, that's why you got, I mean, a love of hockey, really this book, I highly recommend a, because we've just heard the story, but you know, th- this transcends hockey and in there, I mean, your passion for the game is second to none. I don't know what other example I could use being a number one example of someone that's, uh, you know, relentless and resilient. So listen, uh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you joining us. And if you, um, you know, Brian Boucher is one of my closest friends in hockey, even if we don't see each other much anymore. And if you guys have anything on the go, uh, you know, whether it's your book tour in Toronto or whatever it might be, I'd love to get together with not only you, but Brian at some point in the future. I had had him on my show a little while ago too. And if that's possible, you know, before we kick off, Brian, I'd love to see you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Perhaps I'd love to have some beers with us three. It'd be, be a lot of fun. And uh, thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Okay. Good luck. Okay, buddy. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Brian Perard. Nikolai's here. Dev Perard. One time of scores. Okay. Good to go. Thank you very much, uh, Brian Perard. Uh, just amazing. What an athlete. What a human. What a character. Mike Hickey, thanks for helping me today, but buddy. No problem. Uh, one thing that I wrote down that we never got back to was uh, you guys were, were unsure of and Biz actually did, in fact, fight in the Prospects game uh, yeah. for the CHL. He fought Dion Phaneuf. He also wow. got a goal in that game and was named the player of the game for Team Orr. Wow. So he... he- there you go. Biz there was the a time where, where there was a time when Biz was was the hockey player. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know, Biz was a defenseman at oh, first, yeah, right? Like he, he and he was like under eighteen, Team Canada. I've often said like he plays a character and that's his shtick. But Biz is a good hockey player. Like I, I'll say, a great hockey player. When you're out there just playing in the NHL, I mean, there's only six, seven hundred jobs, and there's tens of thousands of great players. And Biz could play that role because, you know, he was Biz and he connected teams and he glued them together, but. There's an argument with the right team that he wouldn't have had to do any of that. He was a great hockey player. And uh, anyway, now I'm sucking him off. But uh, <laughs> it, it's true. It's true. And there's a lot of similarities. And, uh, you know, th- that was a, just a great story overall, I thought. And uh, thanks to you guys for tuning in to Episode 2. I'll be back soon. We're going to try to pump these out every couple weeks. And, uh, you know, always remember to check me out on Third Man In. Well, us out. Uh, Third Man In's our podcast. What's our... What's our Three of my podcast. 3mipodcast.com uh, we're also on Facebook and Twitter and all that just follow me for those details and uh, I am Terry Ryan 20 on Twitter Terry Ryan 2020 on Instagram Mike Hickey comma Mike on Hickey, all the things Hickey comma Mike on all those uh, platforms thanks again this has been Tales with TR see you soon